Hello and welcome back to Pulliver, a BMX podcast with Chris Doyle. I want to say thank you to everybody that listened to my first podcast, my interview with Chris Bennett. And thank you to everybody that gave uh, really great feedback, both positive and negative. And I shouldn't even really call the negative feedback negative. It was more constructive criticism, people uh, giving advice on how to make the audio quality better or how to better format the podcast, how to format the interviews. So I really appreciate all the input that I've gotten from so many different people around the world. And and again, a huge thanks to Chris Bennett for just being a, a, a great first uh, test subject. Uh, it was really fun to sit and talk with Chris, even though I've known him for 20 years. A lot of those stories I hadn't even heard. So that was really cool to just sit and chat with a friend like that and to learn new things after after all this time. So my next interview is with Steve Buddendeck. Steve is this tireless, selfless pillar of the BMX community and the BMX industry. He's done so much and he's been around for so many different monumental occasions in BMX. And he's he's certainly a guy that I owe a lot to. And I'll put it to you this way. You would have never heard the name Chris Doyle had it not been for Steve Buttendeck um, and him taking a chance on me when I was just a 16-year-old kid. So I, I really owe him a lot, and he's been a much better friend to me than I have been to him. So hopefully this interview does him some justice, and it allows you to learn a little bit more about Steve. I feel like I didn't really talk that much during this interview. I feel like I just kind of gave Steve topics, and then he would just uh, talk about them. And it, it went really well in that Steve's very articulate, and he's very well-spoken, and he's very smart. So he's really able to paint a good picture with his words and with his stories to where you feel like you were there for a lot of it. So it was really great. And who really wants to hear me talk? It's a, it's about the person that, that I'm interviewing anyway. So I was really happy that he was uh, available. He's a very busy guy. And I'm really happy uh, with how the interview came out. Uh, I was going to edit it originally, but I decided just to leave it long and you can listen where you want to listen and uh, skip where you want to skip. But uh, I think there's a lot of great content and there's a lot of great stories. So this is my friend, Steve Buttendeck. All right. Sitting here with Steve Buttendeck. Uh, Steve is a good friend of mine. Uh, Steve is a guy that not only has helped me a lot in my BMX career, but Steve gave me a BMX career and he's a really smart guy he's had a hand in a lot of different things in the BMX industry and he's someone that I've always looked up to someone that I've always admired and uh, definitely mentored me a lot especially my my young adult life um, so I wanted to sit down and chat with him a little bit tonight and uh, hopefully introduce more people to my friend Steve Bundeck. Thanks for having me, Chris. I was really nervous to make that intro. Great job. <laughs> With you sitting right here. <laughs> yeah. um, now, I guess we'll just kind of start in the, in the beginning, like where, we, where, I, where most of these things start. Yeah. Uh, when I first met you, I think you had just moved to Ohio. Uh, you spent a good amount of time in North Carolina as well, right. but you're originally from upstate New York. From correct? Rochester, yeah, western New York. Okay. Now, I mean, upstate New York is 
It's a pretty rich history in, in BMX. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the scene like back then? And, and what was like some of your early BMX beginnings? Uh, I mean, I got into BMX just because all the kids in the neighborhood had BMX bikes or had bikes that we thought were BMX bikes. And there was a house that was being built. I think the, I mean, you notice now that you know how things work, but the builder went bankrupt. So there was a basement that was dug had no cinder blocks or concrete, so it was just a pit at the, at the end of my street. And somebody started like dropping in and then flying out the other side. And you turn around, you just drop in and pedal across the basement and then fly out. And there's a kid or a, like a teenager named Mike Van Aken, who's like the local dude that had cool mags and could do tabletops and was like, not really interested in any of us younger kids, but he was like neighborhood hero. So we would just go down there and just try to jump our bikes, which are like, they weren't BMX bikes. They're just like banana seat bikes that we, we felt like were. What BMX. year would this have been? Uh, probably like 81, 80, yeah, probably 81. I got my first BMX action magazine in 82. So that's like when I was really introduced to what BMX was and like mowed lawns and saved up money. And I remember you know, I couldn't couldn't save much money. I just wanted to get a bike. So I went to Towner's Bike Shop in Rochester. And they had all these frame and forks. And I really wanted a hutch. But the Race Inc., Race Incorporated one, didn't come with forks. So it was so much cheaper that I got that one and just put all my crappy parts on, like, this really sweet frame. And, like, I didn't have the right side seat post. It was a huge nightmare. But that was, like, the first, like, moment I really had a BMX bike. So it was probably... 80, probably 83, 82, 83. Okay. Now that's the area that like, uh, like Greg Walsh is from there. Yeah, area. Greg Walsh is from there. Zach Phillips. Yeah, Zach Phillips. Tony Hal, Zaney. Tony Zaney. Okay. Yeah, Zaney. Uh, Hal Brinley. Um, I mean, those guys are all, I mean, Zach's younger than me. Hal, of all those guys, is like the one that was, he's a year older than me. So I rode with, you know, a bunch of, local kids in my neighborhood and my my school. There's a, a good friend of mine, Rob Lee, who works at Adidas. He was like my childhood friend whose parents supported BMX. So my parents didn't mind me just going down the street and jumping. Or like we went in the woods and made trails and they were cool with that, but they never took us to BMX races. Like for one, it cost money. My parents were like super against spending money on most <laughs> of anything, um, or my dad is really. Uh, so my friend Rob's dad took us to local BMX track, which I think it was called Olympic BMX. And it was in Rochester behind a bike shop. It was part of the EBA, which is Eastern BMX okay. Association. And we, he took us there, you know, maybe like five or six times, but we never had the parental support to get to like a bunch of races. And then in 1984, Freestyle Magazine came out. And that was like mind blowing because we subscribed to BMX Action, so we're just like, there's a lot of trick riding in there, and that's what we were doing, like ride flat land and just kick turn ramps and stuff. But then once freestyling came out, it like legitimized that there was like this cool thing to do on your bike that you didn't really need parental support or like a ride to some place to do it. Yeah, it's 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 funny what you said, how you said that because I think everyone can kind of relate to that because when you're very few people from that generation from my generation and your generation like when you're doing stuff on your on your bmx bikes you you 
before you see a lot of media, you think that you're kind of like making things up on your own. Right, right. And then you realize there's like, oh, there's this, people are actually doing this. There's, there's an industry. There's like such thing as a professional. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. And yeah. it kind of just, I don't want to say it lights that fire, but it kind of throws a little bit of gas on the fire. So. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so that's really cool. Um, well, one name that you already mentioned, uh, the guy I really wanted to talk to you about was Hal Brindley. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's from your hometown? He's from a couple towns over. So I was on, I was sponsored by Park Avenue Bike Shop in Rochester and doing like trick shows. And like we're wearing racing uniforms and there's a quarter pipe and we're doing flatland and we're just like, doing parades or festivals and whatnot. So it was like typical 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And we would like open for like Woody Itzen or Mike Dominguez or like a legit California factory freestyle team would come to town. And if our bike shop was like hosting it, we would be like doing the warm-up show. Um, Kind of a side note, I I did a show once with Steve Rocco from World Industries. There was the local skate shop was doing, had a Vision Streetwear demo and they needed some bmx guys so i was hot flatland dude so i remember getting called and doing they had like a lawn tramp and like i didn't my brother skated a lot and i had a skateboard but going there and doing it i didn't know who anybody was but i remember telling chris carter that i did a, a demo of steve rocco and he was like mind was blown oh wow that, that was a long long time ago but so i met hal really through freestyle shows he came to one of our shows and we had like for this boy scout jamboree thing and we built a a half pipe. We actually brought a half pipe and it was really janky. Like one side was six foot tall, the other side was seven. It's probably 12 feet wide. We constructed it in the parking lot and then did a flatland show like skateboarding and BMX. And Hal came to that show and watched it. And I was introduced to Hal there. And someone else said, Oh, Hal has a real half pipe at his house. So I ended up going to Hal's house and no one was allowed to ride the ramp at his parents' house for liability. Oh, okay. So we just go over there and watch Hal ride it. And it was, it was sweet. And we just kind of hit it off and like similar sense of humor. And You guys are definitely cut from the same cloth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you guys are both, uh, you're both very smart. You're both very creative. Uh, and you're both very funny. Oh, and I'll put those two together and saying that you're both like creatively funny. And I've spent <laughs> enough time with both of you. I haven't seen Hal in a long time, um, but spending time with both of you guys, both together and individually, uh, it, the the jokes and the stories and you you guys are like one and the same and uh, yeah it's like nonstop laughter yeah yeah so, but you guys eventually did become like best buds yeah yeah so he Hal's one year older than me and he lived like fifteen minutes away closer to the city I lived in Victor uh, Farmington area which is like kind of out in the sticks now it isn't it's, everything's built up but and Hal's from Penfield which is closer to the city but yeah we would. We would ride all the time and like Hal got his driver's license before I did his year older. So he would always drive out to my house and we would just go ride some place. It's like, go do flatland someplace or I don't know. We did a lot of like stunt shows and. Oh, wow. See, I know, I've known you for 20 years. I never yeah. knew any of that. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. So Hal's my freestyle buddy back in the day. I didn't know he was from Penfield. He is. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know who's from Penfield? It's China. Oh, yeah? <laughs> the, uh, the, the wrestler woman? Oh, I, I know who China is. Okay. I did not know she was from Penfield. She's from Penfield. Wow. Uh, Jay Rowe is also from Penfield. Yeah. And uh, I just, like, did a Wikipedia search on, like, who was from Penfield. And I think, 
her and someone else were like the most famous wow. coming out of there. Hal wasn't on there? Hal wasn't on there, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, we'll see. But so eventually, um, you and Hal get to be good friends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when did when did 2B come up? So... Am I am I am I jumping ahead? No, Is no. It, I mean, yeah. I, I don't need to relive my like early early days. If you want I, to, go ahead. No, th- things got better. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Hal was a year older than me, so he went away to college uh, in Virginia. He went to William and Mary, which is in Williamsburg, and then I was back in Rochester in high school, and then I went to community college to Monroe Community College in Rochester. And he was so he was down in Virginia. And he would come home for the summer, and we both made zines. So I had making a, like a BMX zine in Rochester, and he was making one in Virginia. And like everyone was making zines back then, and it was like cool, artistic, and, and it was all copy machine and like letter set lettering. So I made a 2B logo, and my mom is a seamstress. She like would sew, like do alterations, but so like bridesmaids dresses. And Hold stuff. on, what was the name of your zine? Uh, one of them was beyond therapy because I shattered my kneecap. So I really got into it when I couldn't ride my bike. I had a full leg cast one summer. Oh, okay. So that was one of them. And Hal's was uh, Stop Zine. Okay. In fact, I don't think Go Magazine was out yet, but yeah, he had Stop Zine. I can't think what the... He made Stop before there was Go? I believe so. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just because people would call it Zine. They'd see it and think it was Zine. So he called it like Stop Zine. But it stopped zine. Yeah, typical. Yeah. Hal humor. Yeah. So we we both had zines, and I my mom is a seamstress, and she sewed. She made like I wanted like life's a beach pants or Vision Streetwear pants, and those are expensive. And I already mentioned that my family was like extremely thrifty. Yeah. And frugal. Frugal. So my mom would make me like Vision Streetwear type pants. Or Vision Street, or type. Or she made me a hip pack. I want a Vision Street or a hip pack. She, I can make hip pack. It's easy. So she would make me all these like fake cool stuff. <laughs> a lot of times. In fact, embarrassing. My brother, if my brother listens to this, he'll appreciate this. We really wanted speedos. We belonged to the swim club one year, and we wanted speedos so bad. And my parents were like, "We're not buying those." And then my mom made us our own speedos. Oh my God! Uh, how? She had she, she patterns. Just, she just bought the material. Bought the material, yeah, yeah. I don't, hopefully, there's no photos of these, but they were actually a little more coverage in regular speedo too. I don't think she was really into the design, so I think she added a little more. They're a little more uh, flattering. So you were swimming in homemade speedos. <laughs> yep, yep. That'll be a good title for this podcast: <laughs> swimming yeah. in homemade speedos. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so back to BMX. Back to, okay. We get off the swim. The, the no, that's piano. really cool to know. That. That's <laughs> yeah. really awesome. So my mom made all these these pants and like stuff for me. So I made a 2B logo because I thought I was like I had my own clothing company with my mom making the clothes and me like doing the graphics. So I remember telling Hal about it, that 2B was going to be button deck and button deck. And then he started screen printing. He had a little print shop at college. And he's like, oh, we should do something. And I was like, actually, let's make it Brindley and Button Deck. So I kicked my mom to the curb. <laughs> I mean, right now, I'd probably be doing like a Michael Phelps style podcast about like racing swimwear. Yeah. If I'd stuck with my mom doing the, the Speedos, but, you know, did BMX instead with how. 
Wow, that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you guys did, it was Brindley and Bundy. Yeah. So yeah, Hal printed all these shirts and we just, um, I moved, so I would, because I was at home, I would work, I worked at Kodak during the week while I was going to community college. And then I worked at a car wash on the weekends. I just worked all the time, saved as much money as I could so I could move to Virginia and live at college with Hal during the summers. Okay. And that's when we really started doing 2B. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, that explains how you guys both wound up down south. Right. How did you guys eventually settle on North Carolina? Or actually, let me go back a second. What did you go to college for? What was your degree? Uh, communications and marketing. And I went to Fredonia State, which is sort of by Erie, Pennsylvania, but in New York. So like between Erie and Buffalo. Uh, yeah, I've driven by it yeah. count, countless times. That's yeah. where the uh, 10,000 Maniacs came from. Yeah, you've been to their Wikipedia too, the Fredonia Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> no, you actually told me that one time. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, Claim to fame. Anyways, so yeah, that, that brings you guys both down south. Yeah. Uh, how did you guys eventually settle on, was it Winston-Salem? So how, how graduated from William & Mary and moved to Richmond with Chris Hargrave. Do you remember Roni, the, the guy? He's from kind of near us. He's from the southern tier of New York. Avoca, um, I think is the name of town. I met him years later. He in, was the kink art director for a while. Um, did he live in... When when Lee, when uh, Lee and Howe were living in Chapel Hill, did he live with them? Mm, I don't know. He was, so he was the editor and art director of Ride Magazine for a while. Lived okay. in California. Okay. But he's from our hood. He's from like the same Western New York part. Okay. But Howe moved from William & Mary. He graduated and then he moved to Richmond where Chris Hargrave was living because he was going to VCU. So then when I graduated from college I moved to Richmond and Hal had already been there for a year and he didn't really like the city he didn't really like the vibe there I was excited because I was just like fresh out of school and just so excited to be out on my own for good and we just decided Hal didn't want to live in Richmond so we just started picking places that we might move like we considered moving to Havelock North Carolina where, where Lee is from. Where Lee is from. We went and hung out with him. We were like, oh, that'd be great to live at the beach. But we were traveling a lot, so it was really hard to get places from Havelock. You guys were traveling a lot to do... To, to do 2B stuff. To so do like, 2B stuff. We'd like drive to Rampage Skate Park in Davenport, Iowa. Just to, to like, sell t-shirts. To sell t-shirts and go to a contest. Or we'd go to Four Wheels Out or Scrap in Chicago. Or we'd like, there were a lot of MBL freestyle contests back then. So we would just go to Cleveland for a... A contest. We were just constantly going to like Reading Skate Park in Pennsylvania or going to Sharmersville or going to Rochester, just going to events and selling t shirts, like laying out a sleeping bag, show them up, like all the stuff we've got to sell. And we would just sell because you couldn't get BMX brand clothes anywhere. Right. Was 2B successful? Yeah, yeah. It was, we didn't know what we were doing. Like, it's interesting when you're, when you're learning how to do something because you just, you know, we knew how to print shirts. We designed shirts, print shirts, and we would go to contests and sell them. But we didn't, like, I worked at a car wash, and Hal was an ice cream man and worked at a movie theater. So, like, our, we didn't have, like, family business experience or we're just kind of trying to figure out how to do it. But, uh, motor, you know, Ree from Motocross International in Japan. Mm-hmm. She was our distributor. Like she contacted us because we advertised in Go Magazine, and 
she bought so much Tubi stuff. It was crazy. We would, when we lived in Richmond, we sewed all the clothes, like not the t-shirts, we printed those, but we made shorts, made like stocking caps and pants. We would just go to the local fabric store, pick out fabric, buy as much as we could, bring it back. We had a serger, like a sewing machine that kind of hems as it sews. And we just like, we would have these huge orders from Japan and we were making this off. We didn't know how to sew. My mom had taught me a little bit, mm-hmm. not enough to make my own speedo, but of course. enough to make the, the basics. So Hal and I would just sew and sew and sew for hours to fill these Japanese, like the orders from Japan, it's probably like $25,000 order in 1993. Oh, wow. So like to like a couple of young guys, that's this is massive. That's I mean, huge. And it took forever. We would like set goals like, okay, we're going to sew 40 pairs of shorts and then we get to go to 7-Eleven and get a drink. Like <laughs> we would just make these goals and we would sew for like six or eight hours straight. And when we would go outside to go get the Coke or whatever, we would have like so much pent up energy and just be so stoked to be outside and just be running down the street and just like being just giddy to actually be taking a break. And then we'd just go back in and start sewing again. Didn't you tell me a, a similar story? Like you guys would go get donuts as a reward at some point? Yeah. There? Okay. Yeah. And there's like a mystery grab bag of donuts. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to recall my Hal and Steve well, stories. Backing up to Virginia, when Lee Ramsdale lived with us, we, when we lived in Williamsburg, Lee was the morning baker at Dunkin' Donuts. So he would tell us when they threw away the donuts. Oh, okay. So we would we'd go down there and dumpster dive for... Uh, didn't you also work at Spencer's? Yeah, it was in Rochester, yeah. It was one of my, oh, one of my okay, first okay. jobs, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I just remember something about eating edible undies. For... Yeah, ate a pair on, on break one day. <laughs> like a really dry fruit roll-up now. Not that, uh, not that delicious. Okay, I'm sorry if that embarrassed you there. Um, no, no, no. I'm proud of my Spencer's heritage. But we'll get back to um, uh, BMX here. Uh, so, okay, you guys are doing 2B. Uh, it's pretty successful, especially for like just you know a DIY type of... Yeah. Again, we didn't really know what we were doing. Like We knew we had to make ads. We had to buy ads. And like how worked the job at a restaurant? I don't tell too many house stories, but... No, he worked he worked one summer in college at a restaurant and he saved up all the money to buy three ads for 2B and Go. And I remember his last day at the restaurant there's a huge huge party came in. I wasn't there but I love the story. He's he's bringing everybody there's a lot of big party he's trying to do all the work gives all the food and then people are like oh this isn't warm you take this back and he was they were just so demanding. That eventually he just snapped on him, but instead of like yelling, he just took one of their plates and he sat down at the table next to him and he just he's ate their meal. <laughs> and the funny thing is he didn't get fired for it. No. His manager the next day is like, Hal, I heard a story about you. I just need you to confirm if this really did happen. He's like, I heard that you took one of the guests' meals and ate it next to him. And he's like, Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, like it's delicious. And he didn't get fired. No, no, no. Oh, so, good thing, because we need the money for the ads. Yeah, uh, totally. But um, did we talk about how you guys eventually settled in Winston-Salem? Uh, so, we just we just picked, we looked at the map, and I was at South Park one year for the BMX race, and I met this girl 
that was at the mall. I was at the mall, I think, with Vaughn Stout and Mike Hommel. And there's just some cute girl that I, I think I gave a high five to. And then we kept seeing her in the mall and talked to her. And then we asked her if we wanted to go to Eaton Park. And when I went to Eaton Park, it was like 2B heyday. So like everybody's like, hey, Steve. Like I was like the most popular guy at Eaton Park, even though <laughs> I wasn't even from Pittsburgh. And then she's like, oh, yeah, if you ever want... If you're ever in North Carolina, you should look me up. So Hal and I went like probably the next weekend. Yeah. And like there's no cell phones, you know, like we texted her. So I think we just drove to Winston Salem and called her from a payphone and said, Where do you live? And we went over her house and met her parents and we drove by the two B house that was for rent. It was like a half mile from where she, her parents' house was. And then we hung out there. And I don't know what we liked it. We just, I think we went cruising. Like there was, you remember that in North Carolina where people just like go drive their cars up and down the same street? Oh yeah. Yeah. So we went, we went to the mall area and there was cruising and we're like, well, this is like, there's a lot of young people here. And like it was on the list of places to live. And we just like, we moved there just because this girl, Devin Sprinkle invited us to town. And in fact, I probably saw her, like, we moved there and lived there for years. I probably saw her, like, five times. Oh, wow. So okay. it wasn't like she was our bud, but she was she was cool. But we, we met tons of people came to our store. Because we had a house that was across the street from the grocery store. And we had a little 2B store that we, we ran out of there. Okay. Was that the house that had the ramps behind it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. I never got to go there. Ryan Barrett went there with his dad. They went to a race and then went there afterwards. And I was always really jealous that I never got to go there. It's funny because how, like, my upbringing was a lot more strict and safe. Like, my parents, so I worked at Kodak during the summer, and they'd always be like, you need to get a job at Kodak. After college, you should really get it. You could get a job at Kodak. You could work there your whole life. Because that's kind of, my dad worked at Xerox his whole Mm -hmm. life. So that was, like, the goal to, like, find the safest route. But Hal's family was really like, yeah, you can do anything, like really supportive. And I spent a lot of time with his family. So as far as like learning to take chances, all Hal and his family. His family was just like, just go for it and really smart, really successful people. So I think just the sense of adventure to do things, I learned a lot from Hal. But that house in Winston-Salem, like we built all those ramps without asking the landlord. We just we just started building. I remember being like, what's going to happen? The landlord is here. And I was like, I'll talk to her. And eventually she did come and say we had to tear them down. But then I was like, yeah, we'll tear them down. And then she left and then we just didn't tear them down. And then she come back and say, oh, I thought you, I thought I told you guys to tear this down. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, we just haven't gotten around to it yet. And just not... Not that Hal wouldn't take no, but like he was just willing to, to, he really wanted to have a ramp and it was really fun to have a ramp. He was a lot more willing to like throw caution to the wind, oh, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, you His were... riding style. I mean, even, even to be like, if you look at the, the things I've been involved with, whether it be the magazines or, or the brands, whatever, I never want it to be about me. Like, Verde wasn't me and Corey, and Snap wasn't about me. And like, when we were involved in DK together, it wasn't like, put myself in the ads of the videos. I, I just like to make cool stuff. But even back to the 2B days, not that I wasn't comfortable with it, but Hal was a lot more comfortable with, with the spotlight that came with having a ride-around clothing company. 
I could tell from some of the ads, and uh, especially some of the ones in props with the ramen noodles and, yeah. and everything yeah. like that. But that's really interesting. Uh, it's the, the behavior that both you and Hal have. I always thought like you guys came from such similar backgrounds, but that's interesting to know that your upbringing was a lot more structured. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. like yeah. you go to college, you get your job, you do this, you do that. I, I think Hal had the same expectations, but Hal's really incredible because if he wants to learn how to do something, and I'd say today, like in the YouTube days age, you can like learn how to do most anything because the resources are there. But how would like go to the library and read books or like he wanted to become a wildlife photographer, so he bought a camera and he did it. Yeah. And like all the all the things that he's learned to do, he just like how to flip houses, how to do construction, how to you know how to start a clothing company. He mm. just figures out figures it out. Hmm. So. That's so. Now, I don't know what happened first. Um, you guys are doing 2B. Mm-hmm. Um, had you always been into photography? Had no. you always? No. Well, no. I actually dropped it in college because the materials were so expensive, which is funny because I would go on to be a photographer. Right. Did that come before the whole snap thing started? Or were you like, how did, well, okay, let's start, let's start there. How did the whole Snap thing come about? Was that your magazine or was that like Brad McDonald? It was Brad McDonald's magazine. He okay. started Ride. And then he saw, he'd read things I'd written in zines. So he knew that I could write well and I went to school for communication. So you have to take journalism classes and whatnot. So I like to write and there aren't many people that, that do. So he asked me to write for the magazine. So... Was, write for a ride DMX? yeah okay. so I would like go to events you know and, and write like a, a story he'd ask me to do a bike test or just I started doing some writing and then we need photos so he was like oh do you have, do you have a camera so I, I didn't but I like held a camera and I like it was a terrible photographer like I didn't figure it out at all like for a long time I remember Invert which would, was a magazine that turned into Ride UK like Mark Noble would ask me to shoot photos at the ABA Grands. And I would go, and the photos would just be so bad that he would print them and just make fun of me in the captions. <laughs> like, like, like we can't tell if this guy's going really fast or if it's just Bud and Dex dodgy photography. Like, oh. <laughs> so, so in fact, I remember one year I was supposed to shoot photos at the MBL Grands in Memphis, but I made the main, so I gave the camera to Scotty Clevenger, and I sent the photos in, and Mark was like, oh, these photos are so much better. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, because I gave the camera to, to Scotty. He ended up shooting him. But. And Scotty is now a photographer. Do you know that? I didn't know that. No. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's like a side hustle thing he does, but he was shooting a lot of weddings and stuff like that wow. um, for a long time. And I don't know if he's still doing it, but um, he has his own like uh, website with all his photography on it and everything. Um, but we're getting so far ahead. Yeah. So, so I was working with Brad... And I went, I moved, I left, um, so I was in Winston-Salem, and Tubi was going pretty well, but it really wasn't, I don't know, if, I guess it was maybe kind of guilt, because I went to college and got a degree, and my parents had a deal with me. They said, if you go to college and pay for the first semester, if you get a 3.0 or better, we'll pay for the next semester. And as long as you continue to get 3.0 or better, we'll pay for the next semester. So it was like incentive not to screw up. So I got, you know, my parents paid for 
all but the first semester of community college, which at that time community college was so cheap. But then I went to Fredonia and they paid for all that. And then I moved to North Carolina and they were, again, they were like, oh, you should stay here and get a job at Kodak. I was like, no, I'm going to do 2B. I'm going to like do bike stuff. And, and it was really fun. But there came a point where I needed money and we were like, 2B wasn't like, I didn't get a weekly paycheck. We just kind of lived meal to meal, event to event. So I got a job working for a handyman and we would like go to a strip mall and like I'd scrape the glue off the floor after we pulled the rug up or I just do like the most easy jobs but they're like lame but I got paid cash it was like a girl who came to the 2B store her dad was the, the construction guy and she asked like hey would you want to do these odd jobs and I was like yeah definitely so like we get paid cash and it was like a really easy job but I remember just like I'd be scraping glue off the floor for six hours I'm like how bummed my parents be right now <laughs> if they knew that I was scraping glue off the floor instead of like working at Kodak. Yeah. So I ended up getting a job at the MBL working like in marketing and working for the magazine. So I moved to Ohio and that's when Hal stopped doing 2B because I left okay. and started play. I remember the ad with the dead, was it a dead flower? Yeah. And it yeah. said... No more to be. It was an obituary, obituary, and he like a lot of people thought I died because of that ad. <laughs> so. Was that the the story that like uh, didn't like Craig Reynolds think you actually died, and he like call, he's like, dude, call me back, or that was a different that was a different time. I, I someone said I died. Okay, <laughs> that was a guy after I left Columbus. I moved back to North Carolina because Brad asked me to start Snap Magazine with him, so I moved back to Winston Salem. And a guy that was still in Columbus, the kids that we rode the trails with were like, what happened to Bud and Duck? Where'd he go? And like, oh, man, you didn't hear? Oh, man. He died. And, and back then, like, there's no texting. Right. And Hal and I went to the beach. And we were just like, I didn't tell Brad I was going to the beach. I didn't. And I remember coming back, and that answer machine was just like, <laughs> all these messages, and Brad, and Craig Reynolds, and all these people. Like, the, the news spread about that I died just right. from... <laughs> hearsay so yeah that was the second time I, okay yeah. okay yeah um so okay i thought i thought it was like years later that you went back or that i thought it was dk that eventually brought you up to ohio but it was but you went up to ohio for, for nine months to work for the mbl so i actually moved here to columbus and worked to the magazine and it was going pretty good i liked it it was i learned a lot it was like the first real job working in an office with structure and you know writing for the magazine and like i said i I was a terrible photographer, even when I worked there, and I was shooting pictures of races, and I could I could write well. Like there's certain people that love to write about BMX and about every, like, like every moto, and I wouldn't say that I did an outstanding job in that regard either. But uh, it was it was like the first legit job where I went, and it paid so little. It paid fifteen thousand dollars a year, but I just wanted to stop scraping glue off the floor yeah. and have like something legit. So then Brad approached me to start Snap with an offer for $12,000 a year. <laughs> so a <laughs> loss. But I grew up like loving BMX magazines, so to actually be able to to start a magazine would be so cool. And I remember going, I flew to California for an MBL race, and I went to Brad's apartment, and we're making the Snap logo, we're like making all stuff. 
and it was the day that O.J. Simpson was on the loose <laughs> on the highway. I'd never been to California before. <laughs> and we turn on the radio, and Brad's like, oh, he's coming in the, the 91. We got to go see him. We're like, yeah. So it was this crazy. O.J. Simpson is on the run in the Bronco in Southern California. We're making the Snap logo. This is all happening. And then he, like, got off another highway, so we didn't go out. We were going to go out to like the overpass and like yeah. cheer him on like everybody else was doing. But that was my first time I was ever in California. I was like, this place is crazy. Like, How memorable. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget that. The Snap logo being designed while OJ was on the run. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, man, that's a great. So that's, that's probably in June. So I go back to Ohio. I didn't tell anyone at the NBL that I'll start in a magazine. And finally, I have to tell Bob Tedesco, who was awesome boss. I liked everybody at the NBL really well. I remember going in and being like, Bob, I got a new job. And he's like, no. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm starting a magazine. He's like, Steve, magazine business is so hard. Like trying to talk me out of it. And I was like, yeah, I really want to do this. And he's like, we'll give you a raise. You just can't go. And I was like, no, it's not about the money. I'm going to move back to North Carolina, live with Hal again, make this, do the magazine from the East Coast. And he's like, oh. Can you do? Can you do the magazine from here? Like he's like, can you stay here and still have this job and that job? He was like, super cool. But it's like, no, I really want to live with Hal again. I want to move back to North Carolina. So the first issue of Snap came out at the Grands, the NBL Grands that year, which were in Columbus. And I remember when Bob got the magazine. As soon as that he saw that GT was advertising in the first issue, he was like, Budnick's gone. <laughs> like. The GT and Robinson and Powerlight, those ads, like, legitimized that the magazine could make it. Yeah. we were actually doing something real. Did those companies not advertise in the NBL magazine? They did, but it was proof that we... Because Ride, Ride was really crappy, like, the first issue, mostly because of the printing. But Ride got really good. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like we were starting a magazine from scratch. We were starting picking up where Ride was at at the time. Okay. Yeah, just kind of going off what you what you and Brad had already learned. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, how many years did you do Snap? You were the editor. I was the editor. It was bi-monthly. So it was bi-monthly, so it came out every other month. But it came out every other month where Ride was coming out. So, like, there's a magazine every month to work on. So it was Ride, Snap, Ride, Snap. So you were also doing stuff for Ride then? Yeah, I was, I was the first employee of Ride. So I was the first person Brad ever hired. So I was doing freestyle stuff, like, shooting photos and, and writing and then also doing the race stuff. And I worked I worked for Ride and Snap from like ninety four. And then I was still on retainer shooting photos like I was at DK, so probably maybe nineteen ninety nine. Okay. So for a really long time. Well, yeah, I remember you were always you always had your hand in, in one of the magazines, whether it was Snap or Ride. I didn't know you, you were with both. Um, yeah. Was there a point where you're like, uh, where you kind of found your groove with photography, where you oh, felt yeah. like all Brad, hundred percent Brad. Okay. So he bought me a camera. I was in California. It was actually it was the trip. It was the O.J. Simpson trip. Okay. We went to we went to a camera shop in Hollywood, and he bought me an Icon. And 8008 body. He bought me a 28 millimeter lens and he bought me an 85 millimeter lens. So I had two lenses and a body and a, and a fill flash. 
And he's like, I'm not going to get you a fisheye because if you get a fish, fish eye, I'll just shoot fisheye. You're like, it looks cool. So you're just like, you're not going to get good if you just have a fisheye. So yeah, we, we went to that MBL race and we shot photos and he taught me, like I had a little notebook. I always kept a notebook and kept like You have a settings. notebook sitting right here, yeah. as a matter yeah. of fact. Yeah. So kept, kept notes to all the settings and like the conditions and we shot the same kind of film all the time. So it was really easy if, if it was sunny out. Okay. So you just kind of knew what you're getting into, but yeah, Brad critique my photos and you know, let's send him my film and we'd get on the phone and talk about them and go over everything. So but, he was like your photo mentor. Oh yeah, yeah. Would you say you were a better? And this might be hard to compare, but were you a better writer than photographer, or a better photographer than you were a writer? Better photographer. I mean, like like Brian Tunney is an incredible writer. Like, there's some people that, like, Chris Hargrave was a really great writer, too. I think in BMX, generally, like, if you can shoot photos, that's more important because that's what people care about yeah. in the magazine. So a lot of people shot photos. Even, like, listen to, to Keith Mulligan's podcast. He on some of the podcasts, he was talking about how, it was like Dale Holmes' podcast with Keith. I think he was saying that, like, writing is, like, for him, the thing he hated doing, he did it at the last second. And it's the getting the photos back and like looking them, like through the loop on the light table is like really, really satisfying. Yeah. And, and writing something and reading it is satisfying too. But you're still gonna find like a typo or something you missed. Yeah. So. It's like you said, you critique yourself the hardest. Um, yeah. At what point? Um, so you're the editor of Snap, mm-hmm. but eventually that title went to Mulligan yeah. am I right yeah because I refused to move to California and why is that why I mean it seems like everyone was migrating because, out there well I love so Lee Ramsdale lived with us Zach Phillips lived with us like we had this really fun house we had the ramps in the backyard my rent was a hundred dollars a month <laughs> and I was traveling like East Coast like that's one thing when I was working for Brad. It's like, if you live in California, it takes so long to get anywhere. Like, you can drive to Vegas. Like, Phoenix is kind of far. But when you're in North Carolina, you can go anywhere. Like, Brad would I'd be like, yeah, we're going to drive down to Jacksonville for this race this weekend. In Jacksonville, Florida? I'm like, yeah, it's not that far. And, like, everything was close enough. I could drive to Iowa. I could drive to Michigan, whatever. So, to me, the East Coast is really good. And it was really fun. And there was a, there was a time that I would have, I actually talked to Brad about moving out there. And he's like, oh, we're just not ready for you. But Chris Hargrave had already moved out there. And the magazine was in Burbank, not Orange County. And he's like, it sucks out here. It's (laughs) so expensive. My apartment sucks and it's this much. And I was like, it's $100 to live. I have like, (laughs) live with all these guys. It's like, Lee's so funny and it's fun to live with. Hal's oh so God. fun. Zach's awesome. Like, at the time, there's like such a good crew, and I was like, I don't want to move to California. I'd like get an insurance quote for car insurance. I'd be like, car insurance is me three times as much. Like, I just North Carolina, especially Winston Salem, at the time was so cheap. So, I kind of talked myself out of it because I just wanted to keep having fun and doing it the way that I was doing it. And he wasn't like was Brad wasn't like throwing more money at you. He was just asking you. I see. I wasn't. I was making more than twelve thousand dollars at that time. Great. Because, because <laughs> as we got more and more advertisers, 
Brad was really cool. I never asked him for a raise, but he would just like, he knew that 12 grand wasn't much, but I'd like first employee. So I just wanted to do it. But yeah, he, he started, he had started paying me more. Okay. But it got really difficult because something about looking back at those days, like Brad and I were so busy, like he was making the magazine, like from running the magazine, shooting photos, selling ads, and I was doing, like, laying out the magazine, shooting photos, writing, going to bike tests. Just, like, we were both so busy that we never learned about, like, the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, I would, being in North Carolina, in California, between the time difference and then, like, couldn't FedEx stuff back and forth. It was too expensive. So we would direct connect modem to modem. Like, we didn't know that you could, like, send an email from AOL and, and put attachments on it. So we would, like, connect computer to computer across North Carolina to California. And then we would, like, transfer the photos, these images, like these little thumbnails so I could lay out the magazine. And it would take forever. I mean, think about it. It was dial-up. There's no high-speed internet It must there. have taken, like, days. And the connection would fail. <laughs> so I'm in North Carolina. It's three hours difference. So... Brad would be like, call me at you know, 8 o'clock his time, 11 o'clock at night. And I'd be like, all right, are you on X, y, X modem or Y modem? Oh, I'm an X. Oh, okay, I was connected, connected. And like, you, so you'd have these like technical difficulties. And then like, okay, I'm uploading. And I was like, whoa, it says hour and 34 minutes. And then it's like 11.30 at night. And I'm like, I got to be awake to make sure that this, these photos stop. So I'd be trying to stay awake. Sometimes I'd go to Walmart. Walmart was open 24 hours. I'd be like, oh, Walmart's down the street. I'm just going to go there and walk around for a little bit and wake him up and come back. And then like, oh, crap, the connection <sighs> broke. So then I call. There's no cell phones. So I would have to call Brad and like, hey, man, connection broke. And he'd be like, oh, I'm, all right, I'm finished something. I mean, it was like so much work because, like I said, we didn't know about email. We didn't know that you could attach the files and just send each other email. But at that time, AOL was like, did you have AOL? No. Okay. So AOL was like how you got on the internet. Like people didn't know that like AOL was it. And for a long time, that's yeah. a lot of people still thought that. But yeah, so once once there was like snapbmx at AOL.com, we could like start sending stuff more reliably. That helped. But there were just so many like technical it made it really hard for me being in North Carolina and Brad being in California and eventually I was just like I'm not, I'm not moving and then Brad called me he's like hey so I want to let you know I'm hired Keith Mulligan he's coming out here and I was like man because I really thought I could pull it off from North Carolina I remember going to the Christmas Classic like a couple weeks later and seeing Keith and Keith like come up and he's like are we cool and I was like yeah man I, I'm not moving out there and it was better for Keith to run the magazine because especially the racing magazine like Keith is a badass bike rider and racer yeah. and like he's already like I was more of a fan of racing like I grew up with the magazines I raced a little bit like I said my parents weren't into it so when I was in college I started racing again like at Presque Isle and Erie but I wasn't like I mean Keith is like world number two like total super legit racer and, and it was better to have Keith as like, I don't, I mentioned before, like, I don't, like, 
put myself like, hey, I'm the magazine editor. Like, it's all about me. And Keith didn't either. But still, when you're making a magazine, I always wanted to be like, not what I said about how the race went. It's better to get Steve Veltman to talk about it and have Steve Veltman tell you what why he won or what went wrong. And like, for me, it was always important to let the writers do the talking because I'm just a guy that... You're a fan. Yeah. 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 Uh, now, was there a time when like, you were like an East Coast editor and he might have been the West Coast yeah. editor. Was that how it was? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and eventually it was just all him. Uh, yeah. Because you went to work for DK. Was yeah. It, so it, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Um, I remember when I sent you the notes for this podcast, you're like, oh, put in there about me. Uh, you helped run the Extreme Games. Yeah. The first the, yeah. The first one. So I worked, you know, obviously I worked at the NBA. So Bob T and everybody there knew me. And then I'd done all the to be dirt jumping contests like MBL BMX races and they were do they were airing some BMX races on ESPN so ESPN came up with the extreme games so they they're like oh it's BMX we need the MBL so they went to the MBL and this guy Bob Warnicke from New Jersey was like in charge of the BMX in the extreme games and he's like really good really good guy he might have been an attorney he was like he raced BMX but he didn't know anything about freestyle so they're like oh Steve knows about freestyle he works for the magazine so Bob Warnick he's like hey will you partner with me help me through this they're doing this crazy event so I'm like yeah yeah sure no problem so a couple months in he passed away so all of a sudden ESPN's just like Hey, Steve's the guy. So I'm like, well, I want Hal to help me. So we're just planning this crazy event. And we don't, there's no contract. And we're from BMX. And BMX is like so gritty and like, nobody's making money riding BMX at the time. I mean, even the ride was around. Like Mira's contract with Hara was like $1,000 a month. That was like unheard of. Yeah. Like unreal that some dude was getting paid $1,000 a month. So I'm putting together this event and I mean, really Hoffman, you know, I, I got to invite everybody. And it's funny because like for Dirt, I invited like Brennan Brown and Scotty Clevenger and just like legit dudes that were really good dirt riders and had gone to 2B contests. And I remember Woody Itson was at GT and he called and he was like, who are these guys? Like he didn't, he'd seen the list. He's like, John Parker and Rob Nally are two of the best dirt jumpers in the world. <laughs> and you're not on this list. And I was like, no, I mean, Rob's, the, yeah, those guys are badasses, but like they're freestyle guys like Vert and, and Ramps. And he's like, they're the best dirt. Like it's his job to get GT on TV. So he's like arguing with me about how these guys, it's a total sham and he's calling ESPN and like, they don't, they're not going to like, entertain his request but no offense to rob or john but i didn't invite them to be in the dirt contest man that would have been a sight to see yeah. because legit dirt jumpers were having trouble with that thing <laughs> right and right. to see yeah i can't imagine those guys even though miron yeah. won it so right so we go i remember after like i have to go to espn for the first meeting i remember thinking i better take my earrings out <laughs> so i actually took i had hoops Take my earrings out, went like I'm ready for this big business meeting, and it's 
all these extreme sports people. And it is so kooky. Was this up in like Bristol, Connecticut? Yeah, that's okay. what the meeting was. And there's like, it's inline skaters and it's, it's bungee jumping and like street luge and just like all this wacky stuff. So I get there and I'm like, I can't believe this is, this is crazy. <laughs> it was like 20 day festival. And it was just so, I, I kind of got thrown into it because Bob had done all the initial planning. All of a sudden I'm just in these meetings and it's so crazy to me. Like, I mean, the, the BS contests were all that were going on at the time. And whatever the prize money was, I'll probably get it wrong, but it's probably like $1,000 pro purse or $1,500 pro purse. So the X Games or Extreme Games, ESPN, like, how about $5,000? Like, $5,000! <laughs> and then at one time, Hal and I went to a meeting, and the guy's like, hey, you know, Steve, you, you've never told us how much you're going to charge us to run this event. And we're like, I mean, we're like eating ramen noodles and like, camping out in house station wagon so we're like no business experience we're like i don't know what's the pay and they're like five thousand dollars and we're like trying to keep a straight face <laughs> after the meeting we're like literally dancing in the streets we're like five thousand this is insane five thousand dollars like like the other sport people like the street luge and they're all getting 25 grand oh jeez. we don't know that we're just like five thousand dollars like the pro purse is going to be $5,000. Like, we're just so giddy. Just We just thought, like, this is crazy. And I think that's one thing about BMX. You know Kathy McGrath. Mm -hmm. I remember, at least if you grew up in the era, I think you set the bar a little low about what you're worth. Because I remember when we started working with Target. I was shooting photos for her, and I would, like, submit. A quote and she'd be like I shredded that you need to hire an assistant you need to charge me for mileage you need to like you need to we're not going to hire you because you're the cheapest we want to hire you because the best you don't have to have the highest price to be the best but you cannot be like a tenth of what the ad agency wants for it and I think that's again like growing up in the era where everything was like total DIY and you just don't have like you look at Miron and McCoy and Matt and and just that era of those guys just crashing like this BS contest nobody walked away in vert and they were just trying to win 500 bucks right so being a part of the era where everyone's just working so hard for nothing and it's so fun I think that's why when Hal and I got the offer for $5,000 from the next games we're just like this is unreal but it, again Matt took over the next year and he totally went to bat for like because he knew, he knew the inline skate guys from doing demos, or he he's just so connected to all those other sports. And they also they changed the name to the X Games. They got rid of like a lot of the really really whack stuff, like bungee jumping. Bungee jumping, like I don't know. It was it was it was so crazy to walk into those meetings and just hear the numbers and like it was laughable. And in fact, while I was running the event, I remember. How would go run practice, and I did an interview with Christoph Levesque for Snap. He didn't speak English that well in 1995, so I'm like in my room, two hours on the phone with Christoph, and I'm probably like had a little mini cassette recorder next to the phone, like trying to get it, and then have to transcribe it. So I had, I was on deadline for the magazine. So 
we were there for 20 days running this event and I was making the magazine. So it was like going, Hal, you do the practice. I got to go lay out this, this interview. And like, I remember making the whole magazine and Brad flew out to shoot some of the BMX stuff at the end, but it was just how you did it back then. All right. That was, that's really interesting because when, when you texted me about the extreme games, it's like, Oh, I didn't know that you did that. And you go, yep. 20 days. That's like, <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, the Rogers stayed in dorms. I heard, I remember listening to a dig podcast with Jimmy Levan, and uh, the question was like, oh, do you remember like how crazy it was? Shad was doing the interview, and he's like, do you remember how crazy the extreme games were? Like, how do you remember getting that call? And he's like, yeah, Hoffman called me. And I was like, no, I called you. Not that I need credit for it, but it's so long ago, and like it was so weird. And even just me getting to invite, it wasn't like I had a spreadsheet. I was like tallying everybody's scores from the BS contest. I was I was looking through magazine results, but just like, yeah, Jimmy Levan's great. Let's make sure he's in here. Or just yeah. like, yeah, Jamie Aaron's great dirt rider. Just, it wasn't, like I said, we invited a ton of people and the event was really long and the riders stayed in the dorms and it was just really, really, really weird. Yeah, like when you think about it, like where the X Games have come to now like yeah. thinking back to like the first one like that's and then matt hired me for to be the head judge like for the next year because it was like hal and i's events he's like oh you guys you guys we still want you to be a part of this and i wouldn't say i got paid more to judge but i i went to like matt every event so like x games in barcelona or kuala lumpur or rio or like some weird world x games in san antonio like i could i did all those events got paid to be there and then i shot for the magazine and it was fun like really really thankful that that i had those opportunities because like steve swope and matt hoffman and like the whole crew from oklahoma city like been all around the world with those guys on espn's dime shooting photos seeing amazing places so like that to me is actually better than the extreme games yeah so just those relationships that you were able to build yeah, from there. If I'd stuck it out, I mean, they, I was at DK and I was still judging and shooting photos and like just doing so much stuff that eventually, once it got to San Francisco, I just told Matt, I was like, I can't like keep going to right. all these events. Wait, I remember when you were judging and uh, I was riding in the contest a lot of times. So it was like my team manager was judging the contest. Yeah. And you were always really, really fair. Uh, you never gave me anything higher than I thought I, I deserved. But yeah. I remember you'd come up to me after the contest. You'd be like, stop doing X-ups on the first set. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> it's it funny having like yeah. the insight of your team manager as your judge. But like, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I do remember you judging a lot of those contests. Um, let's talk about DK. Yeah. Because eventually um, your role, you were like the marketing director right. of DK right. Bicycles. How did that all come about? So when Hal and I did 2B, System Cycle was our distributor. They approached us and said, hey, can we sell 2B stuff? We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, that'd be cool. <laughs> like, again, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time, but we had demand. We sponsored, like, Whitey Williams was a guy from Rochester who's, like, local legend, badass BMX racer. What was his name again? His name's Dave Williams, but his... his Everyone called him Whitey okay. Williams. And he had like the local trail spot, but he was like just going to all the nationals. And then we went to a Woodward race and he introduced, I was like, oh, Craig Reynolds, that guy's like 
he's amazing. And like, oh, I can introduce you to Craig. And then we just met all these people and, and we sponsored all these racers and we went to races and sold shirts and whatnot. So 2B kind of got on the map from Whitey and Craig and like all these like BMX dudes that just were happy to put the 2B patch on their jersey because we gave them some shirts. So 2B kind of had some, some juice from that. And then DK was super big BMX like distributor. So Bill Danishek like asked if we wanted us to like, hey, can we sell 2B? And we're like, oh yeah, like another place that will make the call so we can go goof off and drive to Davenport and just do the fun stuff. And I remember he invited us. He said, are you guys going to Interbike? We're like, what's Interbike? It's like, <laughs> oh, it's this trade show in Las Vegas. You guys should come. And we're like, yeah, we're going to Interbike. So we got flights and we're so cheap. We flew. Vegas is a lot different than this is like, 1992 this is even before MBL stuff that we walked from the airport to the convention center oh my god that's such a long walk <laughs> and we stopped and slept in the desert because we got in at night and the walk was so long we're just like man i'm tired and we brought sleeping bags so we slept in the desert and then we got to the trade show the next day and system cycle got his badges and stuff and like where are you guys staying and we're like oh we slept in the desert oh and, my god. <laughs> and again they're like you slept in the desert? And Bill was like, oh, you can, we'll get a room for you. Actually, you can stay with Nikki and Jared. So Nikki is Bill's sister and Jared is his brother-in-law, but Nikki and Jared weren't married yet. So like, yeah, you can stay in their room. Gosh. So like, they were happy to have Hal and I oh my like, God. bunk up with them. But yeah, yeah. So we went to the trade show and I remember Rich Long, the, the owner and this like super powerful guy that had GT bikes system cycle distributed GT and Hal and I were just like we drew tattoos all over ourselves with markers and we like wrote like 2B booth and like had the system cycle booth number on our backs we we're just like being complete idiots eating power bars like because we were we didn't have any money so we were like so stoked you could get free energy drinks and power bars and I remember when Rich Long was coming like for a meeting Charlie Bill's dad was like Stephen Hal cannot be in the booth. <laughs> so we were like kicked out of the booth to get the jackasses out of here uh, while, the, while the real businessmen are here. Okay. <laughs> so that's when like system started the relationship with us. And like we did, a, we did a frame, a 2B frame. Do you remember the 10th frame? I don't. Bad & Company was this, com was this race brand from Illinois. And they, sh they shut down and System Cycle bought all their inventory but because it was like a dead brand, they want they don't want to sell them as bad companies. So Bill called us and was like, Do you guys want to make a two B frame? We're like, Yeah, definitely. So all we did is print sticker packs for the bad and company frames. Okay. That it was called the two B tenth frame. It had like a bowling scorecard down tube graphic. And like we had like it was all bowling related, the entire graphics. And Scott Yokolette wrote one. So we put him in the ad where it's like, This bike is bad. Like we just Oh yeah. So we had yeah. a little frame company for a minute. Oh wow. Do you know if any of those are has any like of these nineties uh, collectors? Mm, <laughs> probably not. They're okay. probably collecting bad companies, not the two B ten frame. Yeah, but that's like that'd be something cool to have. Yeah. For yeah. one of those guys. Yeah. Um, so that's that's how I met Bill. And then my family is from Dayton, Ohio. My parents grew up there and like I was born in Rochester, but I my family there. So I always had interest in DK because they were like 
Dayton was like summer vacation. We would go to Dayton every summer as a kid to see my grandparents. So I, I liked Dayton. And I remember talking to Bill after I chose not to move to California for the magazine. I was starting to do DK ads. Um, funny story. The Robbo Gap in California. <laughs> we went to shoot this like how-to at Orange Y BMX with like Todd Lyons and Neil Wood was there and Robbo was on Univega. And I shot this ad of Robbie with his DK style and DK seat post clamp on his Univega. I remember we shot it so we could have the, the new DK ad in Snap. And then we went to, we actually went to S&M to get a helmet and get all the stuff for Robbie. And I'm kind of veering off here, but this is like the Robbo gap is one of the most amazing. Oh, you got to, yeah, keep yeah, talking. Most, so we go to S&M and Todd Lyons was at the Orange Y track. And we're going to go there so Robbie can do the gap. And Todd's like, I went out there and measured it. There's no way it's doable. I'm not even wasting my time. So he's out. So we go to S&M. And Robbie's like picking up like this Vigor race helmet that S&M used to, wear, used to get sponsored by. And he's like, oh, you think I should wear this? And I remember Moeller telling to Robbie, saying to Robbie, you can dress for the ride or dress for the fall. And he's like, yeah, you're right. And he puts the helmet back. Like, like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wear the pads. So it was Moeller, Chris, o- or yeah, it was Chris Moeller, Mike Ockelbach, Brad, Robbie, and I get in the S and M van, drive over there. We get out there and we're eyeing it up, and I know it's not possible. And you know, Robbie's in the zone, and Moeller, like, I think Robbie did a couple run ups. And Muller was nervous that the van was going to get towed because we just parked like at the side of the road. So he left to go back to the van. And we're, Robbie and I were patting down the, like, you have to see it. I mean, you've been to California. Like when you look at a field, like it's, it's not like tall weeds, but it's just like soft <laughs> and like some. I'm picturing gravel, like a gravel. It's road. not gravel. It's, it's like riding through a field. He was able to ride down this concrete slab, but then he had to like, steer off it and pedal across like this soft dirt and we're just trying to pat down pack down like just one of shovels just trying to do their shoes there's no it's like a really really bad setup and i remember he'd go back and then he'd pedal and pedal and then he'd stop and i'm like oh thank god thank god he didn't try it and he's like no i got this i got this and he goes back and brad's down like in the water, like near the water, set up. Like Brad, we gotta stop him. He's gonna kill himself. And it's like, <laughs> shut up. He wants to do this. Like I'm telling Brad, we can't let Robbie do this. And Brad's like, shut up. He wants to do this. Brad and wants the shot. Exactly. Yeah. So Robbie comes, and the time that he goes for it, stops pedaling. I'm like, exhale. I'm like, all right. He shut it down. Starts pedaling again. So he did that. He could have pedaled more and gone faster. And if you look in the sequence, I'm on the lip or the lip, the the, the takeoff, and I'm just holding my head. <laughs> like, it was so crazy. He's it worked out amazing because there's no water. It's so shallow, and you know you see like his neck on the crossbar. He somehow got his wheel up there, and he falls backwards. That's a long fall. Into, oh yeah, into water. And then he's okay, and Brad's down there. He's, like, tearing up, and, like, he's, Robbie's, just like, I'm so happy Robbie's alive, because I really thought he was going to get hurt really bad. And Brad's, like, helping him get his stuff out. And 
I'm just in disbelief, and it's not digital. There's no one filming. Before no one had video cameras. It was all about pictures back then. And it's not digital. So we just shot a bunch of black and white sequences. So we get them, like, help them out, and then we get back to the van, and Moeller's like, can't believe he missed it. And we just go back to S&M, and I remember Robbie just strips down those tidy whities and Moeller's just spraying them off with the hose, just cleaning them up. And then I flew back to Cal- or back to North Carolina to Winston-Salem that night. My girlfriend picked me up at the airport, and I was like trying to explain to this girl who doesn't really, I wasn't dating very long, what happened. And I'm just still buzzing about it. I'm like, it's the craziest thing. He tried to jump over a river. And I'm just so fired up. And then Brad calls me. Like, I get home and answer machine. Like, I got the film back. <laughs> it's incredible. And we're just like waiting for, you know, him to, to send me the images over so I can see him. But it was, it was still one of the most unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's not to make overblown because I was there, but to this day, it's just unreal. And I remember writing cover lines. Like, that's the last thing we do for every issue of Rider Snap. You know, every, the magazine's all done. We're working on the cover, and we just be writing cover lines. And there were, like, rules. Like, you want to have a number in the, in, like, consumers would see it on the newsstand, and, like, they're drawing to numbers. But I remember writing, big gaps gone wrong. What were they thinking? And that was on the cover. And Brad's like, that's perfect. That's like a masterpiece. Like, just just so excited for that to come out and for people to get it and talk about it. And, like, again, there's no social media. There's no cell phone. People can't text. But just the wildfire that would spread about the Robbo gap. Because at that time, it was just... People still talk about it. Right. And I've seen people put on Instagram where they take all the stills and they make, like, a little gif out of it. But it's still unreal. And it's as if he didn't even bunny hop. Like, it looks like... He just kind of rode straight off the thing. That's that's what it looked like in the sequence to me, anyways. It, and he was just trying to—he was just really counting on his speed to carry him across. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that if he had pedaled the whole way, like when he stopped pedaling, I don't think if he lost three or four cranks, he would have made it. Because, again, I can't stress how bad the run-up was. Okay. It's unbelievably bad. And even when you think about it, I think it's like it's dirt and all of a sudden there's like this concrete slab that he's like he's kind of hitting that. I mean, it's it's unreal. I mean, he went for it. He told me that when he he stopped pedaling, he thought him at Hoffman and started pedaling again. Oh my god. He wasn't hurt at all? No. No, he probably like cut his elbow. He was probably what like 19, 20 years old at that point. Mm, yeah, he's um, yeah, probably. He was pretty young. Yeah, he bounced away. Yeah. So, anyway, I designed the DK logo for that ad. I remember calling Bill and saying, hey, I've got this photo of Robbie Morales. There's going to be this crazy gap that he did. Can you send me logos? He's like, oh, just make a new logo. We, we could use one. It's like, all right. So then I made the, the DK, like the one that you had. I made it that night. And okay. I just sent sent to Bill, and he's like, yeah, cool. I like it. And then it became the DK logo. And what was the ad? Uh, what, what was the picture in, that ran in that ad? It, it was, wasn't the Gap, was it? No, no. It was okay. just Robbie sitting on his Univega in a Univega uniform and fox pants, like fisheye. And there's DK Stem and DK Seatbus Clan. I think I drew an arrow with two of them. And it was like a pretty forgettable ad, but unforgettable day. Oh, wow. And that's the same DK logo that's been used for, for a long time. It's not the current. It's not the current one. Yeah, but yeah, it was like the logo for a long time. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
that's interesting. But just that story alone. Is yeah, so, it was yeah. so insane. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy. Um, and then uh, eventually, obviously, uh, Bill takes you on full time. Yeah, so I moved to moved to Dayton, um, and it's funny because so rad to work there because I had so much freedom. I remember, again, back to like the, the like accepting the five thousand dollars from Extreme Games or like doing everything for free or like designing the DK logo and like I would never be like, hey, I need you to pay me to do this. I just want to do cool stuff and even. Not to go back too far back to like the 2B days, but Hal and I were really involved in Reynolds racing with Craig. And it wasn't like we saw this as an opportunity to make money. We just want to make something cool. Like, oh, we get to make Craig's logo. And we're so thankful that Craig and all the dudes that rode for Reynolds racing rode for 2B. They're like, oh, let's make uniforms. Let's like, it's like an extension of making a zine. Like making a zine was so cool. Now we get to make bike graphics and ads and design uniforms and it was stickers and just, it's kind of all, even to this day, like not to nerd out about it, but we just had the DK BMX, like the pinnacle of the race team's year. It was, uh, USA BMX Grands in Tulsa over Thanksgiving, like designed a new booth, like that would be more interactive. Like, cause you're at a BMX race so long. So, so I'm like, we need to like have education and entertainment. How can we like showcase our products and have things that consumers be interested in like, weigh their bikes and have like a selfie wall and just like try to make it more of a better experience and that like however many years later that's still the fun part of it it's like making the zine or designing the t-shirts like just having an idea and getting to execute it is really really exciting to this day and that's why it's fun yeah 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 so when you when you were working for dk i mean you said you had a ton of freedom so ton of freedom but but again i remember meeting herb hill and Tell, like, I liked Herb, and he like could do tail whips, and he's like a good dude and kind of local legend in, in around Dayton. I remember asking Bill, like, "Hey, can I give Herb Hill a frame?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's your job." And I was like, "I can give people free bike parts." Like that was unheard of. And Bill, like, I didn't really have to ask permission. He completely trusted me to do whatever I wanted with. Well, that's really the way that it seemed. I mean, this is kind of where I come into your story. Um, when I wrote for DK, I always felt like I just wrote for Steve Buddendeck. Because it was like, DK kind of seemed like it was your thing. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was Similar to, I guess, you know, being the editor of a magazine. It seems like it's your magazine. You're mm -hmm. in control of it. Um, so you were like building the team. You were, were you helping design parts or was that? A, no, mostly. Uh, just marketing. Usually. Yeah, like, I joke about this kind of with Bill today is that back then I was just so focused on like the dirt circuit, the team. I didn't know anything about the business. I didn't know what stuff cost. I didn't know what we sold it for. I didn't know what people bought it for. I didn't know how it got in the building. I didn't know how it left the building. <laughs> I didn't know anything about business. Like I knew from 2B how it worked. <clears throat> but there's really no time to learn that stuff because I was just so focused on like wanting the team to be so rad and really that was it I mean I wanted to I mean photography was everything back then so like I just wanted to have the raddest people to shoot photos with that was really what it boiled down to because back then there was only like I'm probably gonna forget somebody but it's probably like 
five or six of us that shot photos at that level, like Brad, Losi, Mulligan, Delecky. But even Delecky didn't seem like he came about until like a, until like a few right. Yeah, I'm probably later. I'm probably putting and then Adam Booth. Yeah. Like there was a window, like a short period of time, I and mean, obviously, like I'm, I'm not like trying to leave Jeff Z out, but Jeff Z wasn't. Well, he was young. Yeah, he wasn't doing it. So there were just like only a couple of us. In fact, I was working like there were so many DK riders in the magazines because I was shooting with all you guys. But I remember Chuck Hooper, the president of Redline, complained to Brad that like this is like the DK magazine, like. This is just Steve Budendeck works at DK and he's shooting all those photos. And Brad's like, yeah, but he's on the East Coast and he's the only guy back there doing it. And I started using a fake name. I started using Mark Clark. So there's, <laughs> there's like a really short window that Mark Clark started shooting. And you'll think this is amazing. I claimed I was from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Nice. If you look in the news and there's one issue that like, hey, we found this new photographer from Johnstown, Pennsylvania named Mark Sparky Clark. Sparky. Look for his magazine. Look, look for his sh- shots in the magazine. I remember Leif Vallon lived in York and he's like, who is this guy? Like <laughs> certain people have like, people started to put it together. Because if I was like at DeGroot Skate Park in Florida shooting and all of a sudden this Mark Clark dude has photos and they're like, Budendeck was shooting with Aaron Benke. like so it was kind of short lived, but that was just because advertisers or competitors were complaining. Like, I gotcha. I always, I always saw different. Um, I definitely saw Sparky Clark. Yeah, a couple of times. That's, is that a nod to like uh, vacation movies? It is. Yeah, great. Here's one reference. Uh, I remember Steve Arino buttered pecs was one. Change it up. Long long list. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you end up? Uh, did you get the 1-800-COLLECT sponsorship? I did. And that, so we had the Dirt Circuit on TV, and then the MBL racing thing, race show was called the Huffy Road to Glory. So DK had the marketing and TV rights to like those properties. So we paid the MBL to have them, and then we could like go to Huffy and have them sponsor it, and it could be the Huffy Road to Glory, and there's DK Dirt Circuit, and then we would go to sponsors. But... Uh, Winter Collect was really big in motocross and Mike Zont was like the helmet painter for like Robbie and Neil with paint can yeah right? paint can yeah so he I mentioned we're trying to get sponsors and he's like oh I know this guy from Winter Collect because he was at the Loretta Lynn's uh, amateur motocross race and we hung out with him he's a really good dude so he gave me the guy's name and I put together a sponsorship and I sent it to him and I called him, and he's he was a cool guy. And he's like, "Oh, yeah, this is." He's like, "This is pretty good. You need to give me a little bit more." Like he kind of coached me into how to make a presentation, and then I went to Washington. Like, remember we went to Winter Collect for the PR training to MCI. MCI. Right. So I went there to Northern Virginia, and I pitched them, and I brought Robbie Miranda with me. And it was so weird because we met in the food court of the mall that was connected to MCI's tower. And he comes down. And I just got Robbie with me. And Robbie's not like, he's a pro, but he wouldn't look at him like, this dude's an athlete, especially back then. So Robbie's there and I like present all this stuff. And my, my whole pitch was, you guys sponsor IndyCar. 
and you guys sponsor motocross, BMX is like the poor man's motocross. Your product is for people who can't afford to make phone calls. Our product is for people who can't afford motorcycles. And he was like, wow, yeah, you're right. So I'm like, we're poorer than motocross people. (laughs) Like, it's kind of just saying like, you know, this is obviously it was emerging because there was the X Games and whatnot. But like, that was the pitch. Like, we've got an audience that can't afford to ride motocross and can't afford to make phone calls. And he's like, wow, this is, yeah, that's really smart. Because he really helped me give me, he gave me the chance to like make the presentation better before I went and met him. But yeah, this guy, uh, Daryl Powers, he was like super cool guy. And like the program worked really, really well. And like, remember Meredith Olson? She was, so she was the rep at the very end. That's the thing about when you have a corporate sponsorship, like the people who manage it in-house change because they get promoted. So you get your foot in the door, you make the pitch, you get the deal, and then Daryl gets promoted, and then another person comes in, and then you have to you have to hope that they don't put their own spin on it, like, oh, I'm going to sponsor minor league baseball, not DK100 Collect. So you're just constantly educating and hyping it up and showing the value. And then the next person. So I think Meredith was the fourth person and even the last year we had the sponsorship, she told me, she's like, you know what? The collect call market is completely dead, but you guys are so cheap. You don't charge us enough. <laughs> Again, like the last year, like the whole program to sponsor the races and the team and all this stuff, it's like, it's a six-figure deal that it started at like a $50,000 deal. And she even said like, this is like, our product doesn't even really exist anymore, but you guys just get so much coverage that we're going to keep doing it. So we were one of the last things to even, like Winter Collect was on its deathbed and they were still spending money to, to have us, which was cool. Yeah, because you guys weren't charging them an arm and a leg, huh? Right. And we should, I mean, I didn't know how to, like it was so much money in BMX and so much money to help like for the TV program and it worked for us, but I didn't know how to like price it. I went to a NASCAR like sponsorship symposium thing at a, at Joe Gibbs Racing in North Carolina just to try to learn. It was mind-blowing. It just made BMX and what we were doing seem like so small and insignificant. And you remember when we went to Lowe's? Oh, yeah. Like, even going there and, like, pitching DK. To uh, Cobalt. To Cobalt Tools. Yeah. And that was the thing, too. Like, really trying to figure out these companies get approached by just so many opportunities. And our my pitch there was, like, you're sponsoring NASCAR. Those guys already have their tools. BMX is young, and you need tools to learn to work on a bike and change your fix flat and all stuff. So start with us. We're young kids, and they'll buy Cobalt tools, and they'll start their tool collection with Cobalt. And it, they, they liked it. It didn't go that far, but it was just always trying to think of, like, not like, hey, we get a lot of coverage. Or, you know, people, even today at DK, people are like, we should get sponsored by, and they tell me, like, a company. I'm like, People want social media influencers now. Yeah. They don't want, like, we don't have a 45-foot race car trailer. We don't have the inside spread in Transworld Magazine. We don't have all these pros and TV shows. Like, back then, it was just, like, the perfect storm where the brand's getting so much coverage in the magazine. And, like, I mean, you were doing great. Robbie and Neil were doing great. Like, we had just so many, like... Todd Everett got paid to ride for DK. And that was another thing I'll give DK credit for. So when we got that money, they spent it on the team. So even like 
everybody got something. Yeah, it trickled down. Yeah, yeah. Quite so, a bit. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to wonder if we should talk about the dirt circuit more. Yeah. Um, because we've talked about like day to day stuff. We talked about one hundred collect and yeah, yeah like, uh, we can talk about the dirt circuit a little bit. Yeah. If uh, it, you guys were pretty much like you, I remember you and Muth. Yeah. Were pretty much running the dirt circuit. Yep. Yeah. Um, which were a lot of fun. I think people are really nostalgic about the dirt circuit, but they. The jumps were never as good as you wanted them oh, to no, be, no. and I don't think the contest ever ran as smooth as you wanted it to. And there was always like, and there's you got Mike McHugh on the microphone, which was awesome. Yeah, but like it seemed like it was really stressful for you guys. They, like, you ever see that T-shirt? It's like it says like the older I get, the better I was. Yeah, it's like a No Fear shirt or something. Yeah, that's how the dirt circuit is. Not for me because it's like the the. Wounds haven't healed yet, but <laughs> the Christmas classic dirt circuits are really good. Those were really good, yeah. And there's probably some other ones that were good, but just the idea of going someplace and building some jumps in like such a short, like the race rock one in old Vegas, like we're bringing dirt into like this place and we can't be there long. Like it's not like you can build the jumps three weeks in advance and ride them in and then it'll be perfect. It's like, we're bringing the dirt and like the contest is in 36 hours. So yeah, the, the jumps were bad at least half the time. Like the ones in Pittsburgh, like the X-Fest ones probably okay. Cause we could, for one, it was Pittsburgh. So there's a bunch of dudes that could build and we could build them a little early and a lot of guys to ride them in, but so many of them were bad. <laughs> like, yeah, just, I can remember like being so stressed about it. And then, like Aaron Cook, Alan's Cook's brother, would be like, "Why don't you guys build these jumps early? These are terrible." I'm like, "Cause the city of Vegas said we couldn't start until twelve oh one, like midnight. Like we weren't allowed to to bring in the first truck of dirt. Like it was just so stressful." And I mean, they probably looked okay on TV, but yeah, like the the Christmas class ones are great. There's some South Park ones that were good and really fun, but I still like there's just some that were so hard to even find good dirt and then it would rain and it was just, oh man. I thought the Florida ones were always pretty yeah, good yeah, they, too. Yeah, because those were the BMX tracks you could get in there early and build them. Right. Yeah, yeah so those were pretty good. But, but think about it, like even if, like we had amateur too. So even if we came to your trails and we're like, hey, we're just going to bring 100 people to your trails and 30 of these dudes are going to be able to clear jumps and, but we're going to bring, we're in an amateur class, so we're going to let all these dudes that just want to go for it ride your trails. What would happen? Like, people are just casing and blasting everything to bits, and we're just trying to put it back together all weekend. Yeah. So. I remember the one time in, uh, at the X-Fest ones. Uh, I think it was the last year it was at the X-Fest. Um, the jumps were so dry, and they, like, turned off the water. Yeah. And, like, I think it was Alan Cook went and bought like a garbage bag full of bottled waters and he just drags them back to the contest and he's like all right i got water and like there's dumping water all over the lips yeah Alan's but there's always dude. there's always like memorable things yeah. like that like they were never like the best but they're always yeah they're really memories. fun i mean i look like when hal and i first started doing contests for 2b like they were just picking a jump on the bmx track so like i can remember like having a contest at south park and it was like a tabletop on the second street <laughs> that, that's you know it's not an existing jump but yeah they're just oh that's the best jump here so that's where the dirt jumping contest is yeah so 
Um, yeah, that, so those those contests were a lot of fun, and like, I mean, there's some there there are probably more good ones that I'm willing to <laughs> dig up because it was just so hard. It was so much work, and people would be complaining about judging and like I remember people like you shouldn't be judging some I'm not judging I'm running the contest like they would just look up at who was on top of the DK trailer and be like you know Amy from DK is a judge like, no she's <laughs> telling the scores like <laughs> always a lot of like yeah you never really could tell yeah like uh, who was judging who wasn't um, um, all right well. I mean they were they were, they were good that, the TV shows again we just go to like this Diamond P Sports that was like an ESPN approved company to make like if we had hired like Marco and Rye to make the show it would probably have been really sweet yeah. but you could you had to like get the approved ESPN people that had the graphics package and knew the format and like the show was just like I remember Mike Laird one time being like explaining what DK Dirt Circuit TV show was like and he was so dead on like run slow-mo slow-mo <laughs> interview like he he like had the algorithm down perfectly. <laughs> well, you got to have a format. Right, like, right. You got to fit everything within like a 30 minute or, or, or an hour, yeah. however long it is. Yeah. So, I mean, I always thought they were pretty good. Yeah, they're, they're fun. I mean, I can probably conjure up some better ones, but I just can remember, like for me, it's like the Vegas Race Rock one was just, just staying up for like 48 hours straight and not like Robbie Miranda, like getting in the front loader and scratching up the concrete in this expensive Vegas venue and just like just crazy stuff like that I remember that in that uh, Robbie was working on the jumps with the guys that you normally use like Mike Hummel mm-hmm. and Hummel was just going insane because Robbie's such a go-getter he's like let's do it let's get this yeah. done and he starts yeah. working he's working really fast and like Hummel's always more methodical yeah. Yeah. and it was just driving him insane yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, every time like they would come in in like shifts like we'd be inside eating or something and like Hummel would come in and just complain about Robbie. And then yeah. Robbie would come in and complain about Hummel. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, tensions, like, it would just get hot. I mean, it would be so stressful. Everyone's working all night and can't stay awake. And like, again, it's like BMX on a dime budget. Like, you can't, you know, it's just hard to source the dirt. And then we're like going to like liquidators that, sell the used carpet at a little casino <laughs> like to try to find patchwork to kind of get things to, to work out and yeah. try to figure out how to make a rolling out of scaffolding that doesn't <laughs> fall down okay, that's, just, yeah, that's a particularly bad one yeah so um, alright it's like I'm, I'm thinking back on the dirt service I'm like oh I had so much fun there but yeah it's like when I like if I go back and watch them I'm like yeah it kind of looks kind of whack but yeah, I mean, you're it's trying the to. Memories are, the TV uh, shows look so much better if there's a crowd. Even if you're watching like an MLS game on TV, and there's nobody in the stands, you're just like that's major league soccer, and they don't have people in the stands. And you think about if you're at Middle of Pennsylvania, what was the car show one? Oh, Carlisle. Like that was good because there were people there. Yeah. Like having people there was such an important element to TV. So you're trying to find like where can we go that there'll actually be people to watch this thing. And that was, I mean, if you did it at a BMX track, it worked because there'd be all the the racers and, and families and stuff. But it was like X-Fest in, in Pittsburgh. Like that was sort of part of the recipe to have a good TV show is you right. have people there. Right. <clears throat> and I always see 
conversation like on Facebook groups about like BMX needs to get back on TV. Like they think back like when Huffy Road to Glory or DK Dirt Circuit, but it's not really what TV is anymore. Like there's so many channels and there's so much on your phone that like you couldn't really go to ESPN and present this like this dirt jumping contest. Like you'd be better off just put it on Facebook Live. Yeah. Yeah, you That's, can watch a, a contest happening like on the other side of the world, like live on your phone. Right. Uh, yeah, it's hard to top that anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you're you're at DK and you were kicking ass, and I I think that was, uh, well, I mean I'm probably biased because I was on DK at the time, <laughs> but I I thought that was like, uh, the best DK ever was. Yeah. Um, and again, I felt like I always wrote for you. I was like, I, I write for Steve. Oh, yeah, I guess I write for DK, yeah. but I write for Steve Buttonneck. But then you leave, mm-hmm. and uh, you start. Uh, did you go from there to Access Media? Did Access. So Corey Muth was graduating from NC State. Didn't always do. He's probably going to work at Brugger's, right? That was always that was the dream. Do. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you should move to Ohio and work with me at DK. Like, you can know how to build websites. You know how to do so much stuff. You were in the contest with me. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And I don't even know if I talked to Bill about hiring Corey. But then I was like, you know what? I think I want to do my own thing. Because I was still shooting photos and I was selling a lot of photos. And a lot of times, I, again, there's a common theme here about not charging enough. Like I would just charge Maxis like 100 bucks for a photo. And then I would talk to another photographer and be like, are you really selling Maxis photos for 100 bucks? I get 500 bucks. So I was leaving money on the table, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to be a photographer. And I just told Bill, like, I'm going to do my design business. I really want to pursue photography more. I don't want to be in the office, but I'll still do, still find sponsorships for DK. We'll do the print ads. Corey and I started, and we continue, we continue to do stuff for DK out of access. Right, so DK was just a client yeah. pretty much then. Yeah, I mean, they were like the biggest client and then we, we, we had winter collect stuff we had Maxis stuff so like at the very beginning it was all kind of related to the relationships I had and then it sort of like we started doing other stuff and we did really weird like we get an intern from University of Dayton and we would do like some confidential medical brochure for a pharmaceutical company and it would be so boring and it paid well but we couldn't even bear to do it so we would just <laughs> get an intern to do it and then, like, we had kind of weird, uh, you know, photo deals. We started doing work for Huffy and, like, shooting, like, pogo stick boxes and scooters and just all kinds of weird stuff. And Magoo, they were doing Huffy's creative, so they, like, retained us. So I would, like, shoot with Nasty or shoot with Randy Stumpfhauser or shoot with Colin McKay or do, like, photos for them. And were you, were you doing access when you got, like, the, were you handling the Target account? Yeah, so the Target thing was through Hoffman. Uh, they were doing, they were doing a show at St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis, which is just this unbelievable organization. And it was like, Target was really involved with the hospital, so they were bringing in the Hoffman team to do a show, to to ride ride the ramp, uh, do a show for the terminally ill children. And Matt called me and was like, "Hey, do you Target needs a photographer? Here's the deal." I'm like, "Yeah, definitely." So they get me a ticket fly there that's where I meet Kathy McGrath and a funny story about that was so they had a 12 foot vert ramp and like Seth Kimbrough's there Ryan Barrett's there (laughs) like there's definitely some some like 
everybody. They just brought everybody in, which is really rad. And Kathy tells the team, I meet Kathy, and she tells everyone, like, listen, these kids are, you know, fighting for their life. Or they're like, you're going to make them really happy, but they don't need to see you. You don't need to see the X Games winning a run. You just need to do a good show. We don't want anyone to crash. So just, you know, don't. Don't go too hard. Just do enough to make it entertaining. It's a 12-foot vert ramp. There's no ladder or stairs to get on top. And I think you know the story. I do. But so I have to shoot. I'm going to shoot fisheye. So I have to figure out how to get up there. And Barrett runs and grabs the coping and pulls himself up. And obviously, I'm barely 5'8". And Ryan's 6'3". (laughs) So he barely makes it up. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think I can get up there. And Keggy's like, you've, you've like flown on a vert ramp before. I'm like, yeah, not in a while. He, he's like, no, no, Matt. Matt's like, here, take my bike. Just fly out, and then I'll just drop my bike. I'm like, I look at Matt's bike. No brakes. I just look at it. And you, know, you know what a condor looks like. Yeah. I'm just like, there's no way I can ride this thing. And then I see Keggy's bike. I'm like, oh, Keggy's bike's compact. His bars are pulled back. Okay, I got this. So I take Keggy's bike. I start pumping. I have enough speed to get out, and I like bitch run, turn around, come back, and I super pump it. And I remember flying out, and my leg is like parallel with the deck, <laughs> and I land on my ass on the coping, and I fall backwards, head first, sliding on my like back, head first, down the ramp. So I crash Kagi's bike with no helmet on, in front of all these in kids. front of these bleachers, like of all these kids. And Kathy's just like, what is this idiot doing? It was the first time I met her, too. So the next, so I'm not going to try it again. And I just, like, ran. I think Seth and Barrett grabbed my wrist and, like, pulled me up. And then they got my camera back up there. And I, and I shot. And I remember after the show, we're in the hospital. And Matt's signing things. And it's Christmas. And he's giving kids presents. And Matt's like, what was your favorite part of the show? And he's like, when that guy crashed. <laughs> And that had like probably did a nine hundred or no handed five or like it was nuts. I mean the they those yeah. guys don't know how to like turn it down, so right. it was like insane. But yeah, I I crashed. And that was again I ended up being really good friends with Kathy and being like she wrote me and I was part of the Levi's program, even like doing presentations for Levi's corporate and like I've loved Kathy, worked really, really well with her. And it's funny that's like the first time that Yeah. That, yeah, Kathy is great. Yeah, yeah. That's the first a time story. that yeah. That, that was really, like, I gave Kathy credit earlier. She would pay me what I was worth for, you know, for Target. She, and then she started the Levi's program, and it was... So, back, <clears throat> backing up to Axis, Will Stroud moved to Dayton to work for Corey and I and Axis. And we, we grew, like, we had a staff and, like, ran a real business. Um, and it was fun, but... When you're a design business or ad agency, there's like, you pitch somebody, you get the work, they love the work, they get comfortable with you, they start telling you, like, actually, maybe you should do it this way. And it wasn't so much, that didn't happen with DK. DK hired Magoo and Revolution to do DK Creative. So our role changed to more like finding sponsors and managing the team. And then we started managing the Diamondback team, which is really weird. Like, we just kind of had this hodgepodge of, like we were like on photo retainer to shoot Huffy BMX and you know, we had Warner Collect stuff was starting to go away and we did Max's motocross ads and we did Yamaha Troy motocross stuff and we just just doing 
all this work. And we started Axis when it was just Corey and I. We rented space from Alien Workshop. So it was Alien Workshop and Habitat and Reflex. And we were like in the building. And we were allowed to be there. But once we wanted to grow Axis, they weren't cool with us having employees. Like they were cool with us because they knew us. But they didn't want to like have a bunch of people with keys and come and going. So when we decided to grow Axis, we left Alien Workshop to just have a legit studio and, and you know, have employees and stuff. And it was it was really fun. Like again, agency works tough because you like you want to do your best work. You show them your best work. You sell the client on that. And then there's this comfort level that maybe they're like, oh, maybe we actually make that logo bigger. Uh, what if we what if we did this instead? So that kind of burned Corey out a lot because Corey only likes to do things is like the highest level possible. Mm -hmm. In fact, he loves to learn how to do something he's never done before and do it the highest level possible. It's unbelievable. He's like a really, really talented guy. Yeah. So the design business was tough because we were getting a lot of work and there's always uncertainty. And we were so scared to spend money. We would just save like we get all this work, we felt like we could never say no to anything, and then we we're just there's like this doom. Like, what if all the clients go away? How are we going to pay for the space? We've all these employees, so we we're just working, working, working. And I felt like we kind of got to the point where we were working so hard so we could make sure Corey and I personally were working so hard so we could make sure that we could afford the employees. So not no, like I'm not taking away from the employees because they're working hard too, but kind of had a realization like you know what this agency isn't it's it's really stressful we're like all our clients are kind of small time and like if dk has revolution do their ads instead of us like that's a big part of our and in fact that was the, the work we liked to do yeah but looking back dk really needed that because they were really getting the complete bikes and magoo and bill bryant were like really smart and had a lot of experience with a lot of complete bike brands and they like kind of legitimized what the offering not that it, it was it was working before revolution but they like kind of brought a more professional level to it now is that you mentioned all the stress that you and Corey felt that you were under yeah um is that why you guys both eventually moved on to other things because you went from there i think is that when you started to work for alien workshop yeah so did you guys have officially ever close access down or is it no like, we we continued to do access okay but I was approached by Carter to work for it, Mike and Hill at Workshop. And I was so flattered because in Dayton especially, Workshop is like, Workshop was really, really rad. It was just like, in skateboarding, you know, the kind of the BMX complex, like, oh, skateboarding, like, so cool. Like, so many BMX, like, Robbie Morales and Mike Ardlene or, like, you know, Jerry Bagley, just, like, stylish dudes love skateboarding and like there's a, there's definitely a large contingent that want it to be they want BMX to be more like skateboarding yeah but they don't know like the business side right. of things they see like the aesthetic yeah. side of skateboarding yeah. so they're like oh we need to be more like them so for I was good friends with Carter and for a long time he's like hey would you consider this you know you could do access out of here or you could do you can still do the DK work out of here we'll, we'll make it flexible and I was like man this is unbelievable so eventually I went to Corey and I was like Carter wants to hire me to be the general manager of his company. And we can do whatever we want. And that's when we were starting duos. Like we can 
we can put all the duo stuff in their warehouse. And then when we start to vary it, we can put like we have to, we can rent space and then we can do it like we can get new hair hats made on the Alien Workshop account. Like it just opened all these doors and like I remember even like we weren't doing Verde yet, but we even for DK I was like, Oh, we're gonna have all these sources because Workshop was like really secretive about like when I was at when I was at DK and I met Mike Hill and, and Carter, I would like ask them, like, hey, who does your printing? And they're just like they weren't willing to share anything with me. So I was like really flattered that they wanted me to work with them. And then I would, I don't know, it was just like the coolest thing in Dayton. Like DK was super cool, but skateboarding so much bigger and just everyone wanted to work at the Alien Workshop. Even when I was there, like dudes wanted to work in the warehouse so bad. I wanted to work, <laughs> like they just had this insane loyalty. Like the dudes that got jobs there generally would work so hard because they were just so stoked they worked. Right, a workshop and habitat. Yeah, and how long were you? So you were juggling being the general manager of an alien workshop with Axis mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and I was still so we were doing the Levi stuff. So I would leave for a week to go do like Levi's meeting or trip or photo shoot while I was at workshop. And Chris Carter was was yeah that was the cool deal. Yeah, like I wasn't gonna give up on being a photographer or doing DK work or doing anything we had going on Axis. Because Corey was still doing access okay. full time. So it was like, especially like I can remember like working there all week and then going on a trip with Kaczynski on the weekend or just like, I was definitely wanting to do access still, but I was just so flattered that I was going to get to learn from people I really respected and be a part of something that was so rad. And I wasn't, I wasn't involved in skateboarding decisions, but I was just exposed to like this really rad business and seeing how they did it. Yeah. You're getting like insider tips. Yeah getting all the secrets that everyone couldn't get. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I feel like we're moving kind of fast now, but if there's, you know, if you want to elaborate on anything else. No, no, no. Um, and then, so you, you mentioned you were, you started Duo. Yeah. When, uh, when you were still at Alien Workshop and you had all this other stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. Just adding more to your plate. Yeah. Uh, it went uh, Duo, then Verde, mm-hmm. then Cinema. Right. You started three brands. Yeah. In the, sp- not a, it seemed like you you started all those in like the span of a year. Uh, Cinema came later or came last, right? Yeah, Duo was two thousand six, Verde was two thousand seven, and Cinema was two thousand eight or nine. So we we started Duo, and it was kind of Duo was supposed to be like the and like the design project where we would never have a client to tell us to do it any other way. So it was like we want to do really rad packaging. And like, we would tell DK, like, I want to do really rad packaging. And Jared would be like, oh, packaging gets thrown away. Not like throwing Jared out there, but like the feedback wasn't always what we wanted to hear because even looking back at all the stuff, like the BMX brands, like Corey and I did a lot of stuff that like, oh, we want to make this backpack so bad. The minimum is a thousand pieces. And I'm like, well, Habitat could sell 300 backpacks and Alien Workshop could sell 600 backpacks. Something should tell me that there's no way that cinema can sell a thousand backpacks, but you just want to do it. Right. You just want to make this rad thing and see it happen. And that's that's one of the things that I love about brands in general. It's like Burton bought Alien Workshop when I worked there. And if you look at Burton catalog, you're like, for me, like my history and like I just look, I'm like, they pull this off. They make all this incredible custom stuff. 
everything in this huge catalog and all these colors and all these sizes it's all custom it's so rad and they made it like you look at a dc catalog back when you were for dc and you're just like it's really hard to design a shoe they've designed so many rad shoes and alien workshop like they design all these decks and wallets and backpacks and like going back to saying like how i liked doing reynolds racing stuff where i liked doing the dk booth at the right bmx race in tulsa last month like i just really love making stuff and i just really respect you know all the brands that i've worked with just the fact that that business is hard and creating stuff is hard and like even even like zach at kink like what what you guys have pulled off at kink is like pretty rad to see it from when i lived with zach yeah in, in north <laughs> carolina to what it is now and like even like being back at dk now just seeing how it's evolved it's just business is hard and creating cool stuff especially for like fickle markets like snowboarding and bmx and skateboarding and like it's it's cool to like back back to workshop to actually see behind the behind the scenes how they do it yeah it's just it's unreal so like you were saying about duo that was to be like that kind of like the boutique style like does like design the stuff that you guys wanted to always design yeah and yeah. not necessarily worry about like how it was gonna be not uh, even really make it a company so much we just wanted to have like you and and bowen and, and van and then and then scotty in the beginning and then and Corey martinez Martinez. like just work with like rad people and make cool stuff and not like like a design project in fact i think i mean it's never reached its full potential because we never made it number one we always like okay verde we got to work on this that's where like that's what bike shops want and cinema again like looking back at the brands like working at workshop and just seeing how it's done doesn't really their business model doesn't apply to bmx because it's like skate retail is different the margins are different like the lead times are shorter like if you get a workshop board and you love the shape and you break it the first day you have it you just go to the skate shop and you buy another one mm-hmm. and then you break it and you buy another one you just love that shape you love that wood shop you love the graphics you love the aesthetic the brand you're just hooked and you're just like so you buy, you know, you buy Verde, you break it the first hour you get it. You're pissed and your parents are calling. <laughs> that was really the one thing when we started Verde is the warranty. Like just what people expect. Like I just spent $300 on this bike and it's got a flat tire. We've only had it for a week. And you're just like, would you be calling Toyota if you got a flat tire in your Camry? Like, <laughs> like it just, some of that was definitely did not translate from skateboarding to BMX, just how complicated the bike is and how like how much more difficult it is to make, how much more expensive it is to buy, how long it takes to make, the expectations from the customer because they're spending $400 on a bike, not $55 on a deck. Right, so. right. Yeah, it's, the whole market is different. The people that are purchasing skateboards and purchasing bikes, I mean, uh, it seems like kids want, they want it cheap, yeah. They want it to last forever, and they want a variety of colors right. and different options to choose from. And it's like, uh, it's not that easy. Um, so, I mean, talk a little bit more about Verde and the, the highs and lows of running a, so, a bike brand. Like so that. I'm at a workshop, and we have this plan to start Verde. 
and it's going to be, we're going to rent space in the workshop building when it's going to be like down and dirty, like no major expenses. And then workshop gets bought by Burton. So it's no longer Chris and Mike's company. And Carter's like, Hey, listen, like, I know we said you could have this space for pennies, but it's not our deal anymore. We actually need the space. Cause we're going to do habitat footwear. So then we had to like, make Verde more of a real company and we hired so we we wanted Lou Caparelli to where our dream like actually Greg Samita was the first dude we're like who's like a smart dude that could run this company because I'm gonna still work at Alien Workshop and Corey's gonna have to continue to do Levi's and Axis stuff so like who's a really solid dude we're like Greg Samita man that dude would be great and I remember we reached out to him and he's like he's a mechanical engineer yes so he's like on the track to like a real job and we're like probably not doing the best job of selling this grand opportunity but he he was flattered but said yeah let's not not down but then we're like man it would be great if Lou Caparelli because I'd hired Lou to work at DK and like manage the freestyle team and like Lou's awesome I mean just like you look back to the era where it's like Dave Frymouth and Nate Hansen and Mike Ardlene and like obviously Colin and just that whole crew, that era, and like Lou kind of holding that together is pretty rad. So we're like, yeah, man, we, you know, Corey and I lived with Lou. Like everybody, like Lou's such a good dude. Everybody loves him. So we approach him and like, hey, man, would you, would you move back to Ohio and do this BMX company with us? And he's like, I really don't want to live in Dayton. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh, yeah. And he's like, if you did it in Columbus, I would move to Columbus and like, you're hired. So we decide to, to set up Verde. We, you know, we just got the smallest warehouse we could find. We wanted a loading dock and we found a spot in Columbus and we just thought it was going to be so much easier. And I think the, the trading agent that we had at Alien Workshop that did some stuff is named Alan Nellick and he used to work at Specialized. He's a really smart bike guy. He was our duo trading agent. And I remember duo, like you were getting tons of photos and everybody in the team is so popular. So if you got a, you know, got a copy of ride, it was just like, you guys are all over it. So Alan was like, you guys should do a bike company. So he's really the one that said like, he lives in Taiwan, had, you know, network to, to make this happen. Corey, Corey Muth moved to Taiwan to learn the business, which when you, if you learn like, more about how the bike business works like the guy from whatever bike company goes over there you know he's jet lagged he goes to some meetings he goes out drinking with the factory he's hung over the next day he gets back on his feet goes to the next meeting and then the next thing you know he's flying back to california but Corey never left <laughs> <laughs> so he's there like the vendors if they want to get Corey wrecked He'll recover and he'll be back because he's not going anywhere. So having Corey there, and then obviously Alan had an office there and knew, knew the bike business. So, you know, Corey learned a lot about like just different vendors that other competitors couldn't find yet because they didn't stay long enough. And eventually they do find those vendors. But we had the benefit of like doing it a different way. We didn't have money. So we, like most big bike companies would build bikes like, twice a year maybe three times a year we built bikes seven times a year because we couldn't afford to do like two a year 
So we always had, like, if Germany needed bikes or Australia needed bikes or Dan's continent needed a bike, we always had bikes being built. So we got big pretty quick because we were the brand that could always get more bikes. But all that really did, like it worked well for a couple of years, but then all it did is like, you know, Fit ran out of bikes and Kink ran out of bikes and Har was out of bikes. Bike shop would call me like, tell us you have bikes, please. And we like, yeah, we got a whole warehouse of bikes. So we were selling all these bikes that Kink, like Rees at Kink was like telling shops like, hey, there's a company called Verde, you should call them. So he's selling bikes for us. You know, McHugh works for Fit and they're out of bikes. Oh, you should call, call Lou, he's a good dude. So competitors are kind of, they're, they're helping us out, but they're also losing sales and they remember that. So then they're going to order more bikes. So everybody just start, everyone just starts ordering more bikes. And next thing you know, there's like way too many bikes here in the UK. We were selling 4,000 bikes a year in the UK, which is unreal. Yeah. And like Ian at four down and Stuart at seventies, they're like, they're not bringing in 4,000 kinks or fits or whatever. So I think they start to notice like, man, bike shops can get Verde's. We had Shiner, which is the only workshop distributor. They are like, they're got they're just they've always got bikes because we're always building bikes and then competitors are like whoa we could be selling a lot more bikes looks like Verde's you know every bike shop we talk to so they just got more Verde's in so everyone's confidence that they could sell more bikes increases everyone's inventory increases and then all the a lot of the UK distributors start their own brands and it's just all of a sudden just everything's flooded all of a sudden our warehouse we we grew so fast so we were like doubling our units every year and eventually boom uh eventually we just get in a bigger warehouse hire more staff and then it's like what happened like hey how come how come the uk distro didn't tell us it was slowing down hey how come dan's comp never slowed down their orders like there's no there's no warning sign like we've always been doubling our units we've always been growing 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 like the year that it finally like stopped working that well, Corey and I were like, "Man, this is crazy. We can't like we sold twenty two thousand bikes. Like that would be our third full year in business. Now, yeah, third year. So we just skyrocketed. And I remember Jeff Sack was doing work for Levi's, and he was in California shooting with the team for some Tilly's thing, and a dude from Haro clowned him for working for Verde and he's like what do you guys sell like 400 bikes a year <laughs> and like meanwhile we're selling 22,000 so we're really under the radar but it just couldn't like that kind of growth I mean that kills a lot of companies that when you grow that fast you can't make the smartest decisions because you don't know and like I said the year that we decided we're like, man, we can't keep this up. Let's just forecast flat. If we can do twenty-two grand, twenty-two thousand bikes again next year, that would be awesome. I know we'll do forty, but let's just plan to do twenty-two. And then we did. We built twenty-two that year, and getting bikes made takes like a hundred days, and then thirty days on the water. So if a bike shop calls and like, hey, do you have the, you have the Eon and black with red wheels? You're like, no. But good news, I have it for you in one hundred and fifty days. <laughs> like. What's he going to do? Tell the kid at the bike shop, like, got you. Come back here in seven months. Yeah. <laughs> so. So, that, so just coming out of the gate super hot wasn't good for the long run. No, no, that's, that's I mean, I mean, there, I mean, obviously I can look back and like, 
it's been fun the whole time, but I think everybody in this business knows that it's going to get harder because Dan's comp used to say that they would like track like what the big holiday sales are going to be. So like if there's a new Xbox or a new PlayStation or some new thing, they would, the stores would run out of it. And then the BMX bike would be like, Oh, you know, my son really wanted the new Xbox, but they ran out of them. So he got a Verde instead. Well, if you look at how the world works, like they don't run out of Xboxes anymore. No, nobody runs out of anything. Right. So if BMX was the second place gift, Everybody got the first place gift. So that kind of hurts BMX. And then just phones and tablets and like, especially like right now, we're doing great with Faraday because it's holiday. We're like bike shops, confidence are up. But there's a lot of Christmas gifts out there. So it's not like shops are going to bring in like 30 bikes at a time like they would have like six years ago. Right. They're going to play it safe. So, so it, it's working really well again. But I don't think I would ever have the guts to go as big as we did. Right. I mean, that almost seems impossible yeah. at this point. Right. But, uh, but it, you guys also did cinema. I don't want to leave cinema out. Yeah, cinema yeah. was like your your wheel company. Yeah. Um, we'll get back to Verde yeah. in a minute. But so you guys did cinema. I always thought cinema had like, uh, in my opinion anyways, had like the freshest oh, art yeah. direction. Yeah. And it had like... You guys had the cool packaging and all the logos looked really cool and yeah. fresh. And even like the shirts and like, I, I, I really looked up, I, I, I'm sorry, I looked up to the company, but I, I really like that company a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Will Stroud deserves so much credit for cinema. Like, you know, really we started cinema because Corey's designed these beautiful bikes for Verde. And then like, is he supposed to put a rim that says big baller on it? <laughs> like just some horrible, like, you you built you know you design something that's really great and then it has like this really lame Alex sticker on it for Alex rims or like the wheels were gross like the stickers and the product names like we weren't going to put that stuff on our bikes so Corey lives in Taiwan he's like hey can we do our own rim and then he talks to a factory about doing an extrusion we open a mold and we just start making our own wheels and originally we again it was, wasn't supposed to be like we wanted Garrett on it and it was it's funny because I like I remember Sexton was supposed to be on it and no he no no he wasn't I'm trying to think who there were some dudes that were almost on it and then backed out but and it was never supposed to be like that the team is so heavy and that's all Will because everyone's like, man, cinema must be paying these dudes so much money. We were not at all. It was like we had a dream team and then like, you know, a dude like Bruno Hoffman would leave. And then all of a sudden Chad Curley's like, yo, is there a spot in cinema? And we're like, oh, we can't, we can't say no to Chad Curley. <laughs> and Dak, like we did a trip, an Arizona trip, and Dak was on G-Sport. And he was like texting us. He's like, man, I want to be on that trip so bad. We're like, we can't afford, like, Dak. We can't afford any of these guys. But Will created, like, such a tight... Like, those dudes were doing it. They weren't doing it for Corey and I. And I mentioned before, like, Corey and I never wanted any of our brands to be about us. We never put ourselves out there, like, 
we're like these important guys. We wanted the brand to be about the team. And Will just like created this tight crew of dudes that were a tight crew of some of the best street riders in the world. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the best. Like that crew is so rad and yeah. like they're so great to work with. And I mean, the wheels should have come off cinema. Like we sold it to Blackout because we weren't really doing anything. We got to a point where we couldn't afford to develop product. And like those dudes are hard on product. And like we, it was just like the perfect scenario of like the best team and a great aesthetic. And we weren't doing team trips. We weren't like, you know, look at Kink. Like you guys were like traveling everywhere. And that was part of my thing to Zach. I was like, you should do this. Like you could like, or Harriet, we the people, you should do this. Like someone who's really great at developing product and making the most of what they do. Like, I mean, it, I don't think cinema would have lasted like weeks longer if Blackout hadn't bought it. I think, you know, Corey Martinez and Nathan were about to quit and go ride for Animal. And I think, I can't believe Garrett Reynolds was that cooperative, that patient because he doesn't need the tiny little check from cinema and nothing's happening. There's no trips. Like he's, he, like all those dudes are so rad to stick around. And again, it's all on Will. Will Stroud deserves all the credit. Yeah. So, huh. Yeah. Shout out to Will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So cinema gets sold to blackout. Mm-hmm. Um, you still have Verde and duo. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and, but you eventually sold Verde and duo system right correct yeah um how was that how how did that come about we weren't growing i mean that's the thing is you can't like you can't grow your business without money like one of the rules like a basic business book would be like when the going gets tough or times are tough spend more because your competitors won't be able to and that's how you're going to elevate your brand but we were just you know we're making bikes in taiwan and they're more expensive than China, but they're great bikes. And like, I was confident, like we're the best factory, but we never made money. Like even like those, the 22,000 bikes a year, like we were paying more to make better bikes. And we made the same mistake over and over again. We'd be like, next year, we'll put a sealed mid bottom bracket on it. And we're not raising the price. So we were always making the bikes better. We felt like, again, back to Corey, wanting to do things better every time he does it, or it's not worth doing it all. We always like, Oh, shops really say like that semi-sealed driver sucks all right fully sealed driver fully sealed hubs we're always making these spec upgrades and i think that's a problem in bmx is like like john and mike at eastern put a 25.9 gearing on like a really cheap eastern years ago and i remember alan foster was a felt he's like have you seen their our 400 dollars bike comes with 25.9 and eastern's 250 has it it's like this this race to the bottom that you're like gonna give and you you know you mentioned earlier what the consumer wants they just want indestructible bike at the cheapest price yeah so so we just made a lot of mistakes as far as like we're gonna we're gonna make money through volume like we're gonna sell so many bikes shops are gonna love that we have a sealed front hub like we just got excited about spec and and we built bikes in taiwan which is a a premium place i mean they make great bikes there um, but we just kind of got 
it just it became evident we weren't going to be able to grow if the if we we're just trying to cut costs like oh don't do this team trip and back to will will would always call me like hey you know dave thompson wants to go here i know we can't afford it but what should i tell him <laughs> so like will did a really good job of like cheerleading and keep the dudes that were involved stoked but he knew the answer was like hmm, my amex is maxed out i bet i bet steve's is too <laughs> so um so that that's all this stress is building obviously and, yeah and that's when you sold the brands yeah. to the system. so when we were cranking and this is definitely a workshop habitat like mentality it's like those dudes are so focused on what they're doing they don't really care what girl and chocolate are doing or plan b is doing like they think all those other skate companies are lame. They're not going to give those dudes any credit for anything because they don't care to stop and even look. They're just doing what they're doing. And that's how we felt. Like, I'm not saying, oh, DK was the enemy. Everybody was the enemy. Like, we just were so focused on what we were doing. We're not going to break focus. We're not going to stop. And, like, when you have a sales guy and lose, like, oh, Eastern's doing free freight on two bikes. We're like, who cares? Back to work. We're doing this. We're doing this. We're doing this. And then when the business gets tough, like Corey and I owned a building in Dayton. So we were in Dayton one day and we had like meet with our attorney and then we had to do something with the building. Like there was like six hours apart. It's like, let's go to DK. Let's see if they'll let us in there. Like kind of joking. And I called Bill. I had stole Bill's number and I didn't get a hold of him. And then I texted Jared, and Jared's like, who is this? <laughs> it's like, Steve Budnick, we want to we come to DK. He's like, let me ask Bill. And he asked Bill, and they're like, yeah, sure. And they were like, super cool. Because when business is good and everybody's cranking, you're just like, man, we don't. Like, got to make sure we sell Verides. But then when business is tough, you're just like, hey, do they owe you money? Yeah. Oh, watch out for these guys. Like, I'm going to say, like, Misery loves company is probably not the best expression because we weren't like a miserable time. But when it's tough, like I don't want Zach to get burned by some guy. I don't want Moeller to get burned by some guy. I don't want Ronnie to like. There's like we're all working hard. We're all doing rad stuff. I don't want anyone to like not get paid. So that was kind of the DK thing. We sort of like comparing stories. And also when we're there, we're like they're selling so many bikes. <laughs> Like, we see, you know, they're not hiding anything from us. We're in their warehouse. We've got inventory. Order's coming out. They're selling a bunch of DKs. And we're just like, it was such a kick in the nuts. <laughs> <laughs> because we're so into ourselves. And not, like, ego. Like, I'm not saying we're, like, doing this for ego. But we're working so hard. We're watching the expenses. We're making the bikes better every year. we got to be bigger than DK. And we get there and, like, damn they're doing a really good business and we just start talking and like you know it's towards the end it was just you know my wife and i had our third child i remember i had to hire a sales rep and like i think i hired him like two days before our daughter andy was born and it got to the point where i just had to hire a guy i just plugged him in and it was hard selling it the dude was driving jeff crazy and jeff's like jeff sack is like been at Axis and then Verity for 10 years and like super solid dude really smart love working with him he works he works uh, system now but 
it just got to the point where I let that that sales guy go, and it's just like me and this guy Corey Spillman, who's really great dude. He works at Sparky's for Ronnie Bonner now. And Jeff, I was like, man, I I have these incredible dudes, and we're working really hard, but there's only so much we can get done. And I'm so focused on cutting costs, and you're not going to cut your costs and grow the brand, like unless you have like all this frivolous spending. So we just kind of got to a point where like we can do this little thing, or we can try to plug every plug in what we're doing at DK because we're pretty close together. They have a warehouse, we have a warehouse, they have product liability insurance, they have product liability insurance. Like you look at all the duplicity, they're spending, we're spending all this money, they're spending all this money. If we just had one warehouse and we just had a combined art department and we just like joined forces in it, it's been really rad. It's been a huge relief to focus on what matters because I would be like, negotiating better rates on workers' comp insurance. Or I'd be like doing stuff to save money that was really important for the business, but it wasn't like making kids more stoked on Verde. Right, and it, it sounds like on a personal level, just the stress levels yeah. coming down that much, especially when you have a wife and three yeah, children yeah, as yeah. well. Like that's yeah. really got to make things yeah. a lot so better. it's fun. I mean, Verde has been fun the whole time. It's been way harder than I ever would imagine, especially working at workshop and seeing like how quick they can get boards, how much they make on stuff, how many customers they have, how few customers need terms, like way, way, way better business. I, I think skateboarding business is pretty tough right now too, but. Uh, I think action sports in general right now yeah. is pretty tough business. Right. So starting the bike company was way harder than I thought. I mentioned before when I worked at DK the first time, I didn't pay attention. Like I unloaded some bikes out of containers a couple of times. I like went back and played badminton with the with the warehouse guys on break every now and then. But I didn't know about business until I worked for Carter and Hill Alien Workshop. Then I learned about business and then I applied it to Verde. And now that I'm at System, I'm working on DK, I'm working on Verde, I'm working on Duo, I'm working on Airborne, but I'm not working on comp, workers' comp insurance. I'm like doing rad stuff and like, I know how to run the business. So like Bill has a second set of eyes that actually knows like if he's going to a meeting about product liability insurance, I like laugh like, man, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. And he kind of laughs back like, yeah, go make the brand cool. Yeah. You get to focus on doing the stuff that you want to make cool. Yeah. And he's got a much smarter and more seasoned version of the me that worked there back in our days at DK. Okay. So. All right. Yeah, it's it's really fun and like you mentioned like the stress of having a family. That really changes everything. Because my first stint at DK, I could outwork everybody. I mean, I could work till midnight all the time. I could you know, be gone all the time. I could like work and work and work and it was still fun because there's so much to do and like building the brand is so cool. But now like I can't neglect my family. So if I go to a trade show or I go to Sea Otter class or I go something, I have this notepad and I have like all the appointments that I want to do. I have all my goals. I have like, I'm so, I'm maximizing time because if I'm going to leave town, it's hard for my wife, Angela. So if I'm going, I'm not going to party. I'm going to like make a difference. Like yeah. I have, these are the people I'm going to see. These are the booths I want to check out. These are the people I want to talk to. Like it, it's awesome. It's created like, <clears throat> 
it's created not that I lacked ambition, but like I don't think you've ever lacked ambition. Right, right. But just <laughs> focus wise, it's been really good. This second stint with DK is like I love the like again, not that I hated Mosh or I hated Sabrosa or like any of the brands we're up against. Like everybody's doing rad stuff. But again, I wasn't really willing to give anybody credit, DK included, just because I wanted Verde to be like the raddest thing ever. Yeah. So being back there, like I love, I have like, you know, I have a box behind that wall of like thousands of slides of Squirrel and you and Adam <laughs> Volk and Herb Hill and Robbie Miranda and Neil Wood and Robbie Morales and Jeff Arrington and like just this period of my life that was so exciting. And now I'm back there, and uh, DK's turning 40 next month. So celebrating 40 years. So we're doing all this, like, nostalgic trip down memory lane, looking through all the stuff. It's pretty awesome. Like, Are you guys putting out any kind of, like, book or anything like that? Um, <clears throat> no, we did this really rad display, like this 6 by 10 foot collage. You're, you're actually on quite a bit of it. But, like, of all the different eras, like, Bill and his sister Nikki, like when they raced in like 1982, uh, and just everything, like all the eras, like Robbie Roop and the movie Rad, and like Robbie Miranda doing the trailer jump, and Nora Cups, and like old print ads, and just, just so much rad stuff. It's funny because, you know, I started working with DK, kind of like not the 2B era, but 95, 96 to like. 2006 so that era it's just like endless content yeah and then pre that era dk didn't have bikes until i think 95 so like robbie morales is on there there's some start there's some content started but before 95 like there's no internet and and dk might run an ad for like seven same ad for seven issues in a row of some magazines so there's not like a lot of old photos or videos so it's been fun when when someone comes up with something like i found this guy on facebook that posted a picture of his son that raced for dk it's like i'm that era isn't something i'm a part of but just see people get excited about yeah and his customers come in and see it and it's like it's cool to see like the whole the whole 40 years in the in photo format yeah. uh you said this is already made right. that we displayed watch? that in tulsa at oh, the okay. grands but yeah we'll We'll do, I think we're going to do a, a DK Instagram account. I think it might be DKBMX79 um, that Scott Town and I will work on. It's just kind of, I mean, we could we could do a post a day because there's so much content, but it's going to be, it would probably be too much 1999. <laughs> <laughs> because a, of, you know, Jeff Maurer's backyard and Matt Bischoff's backyard. And, yeah. Wachowiak for days. I got a lot of photos of him. A lot of 401. Yeah. 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 Um, anything else you want to touch on that we haven't really... Uh, personal life? Personal life? Like I said, I, I mean, I, I'm i a dad. So I, I, you know, I have three kids and my daughter, Georgia's eight. And I, and my wife and I, you know, had our first kid when I was 39. But, you, you know, you obviously became a dad later in life compared to some people I know. But going from like working all the time to having kids, it just really, everyone's like, oh, it's going to change your life. But it really does because 
what's important is so different now. Mm-hmm. Like we're discussing when we could do this. It's like, oh, let me look at my calendar. Oh, we got a gingerbread decorating. <laughs> uh, like there's just so much kid stuff. And, and even it, me just getting to your house, I'm like, oh, I got to wait till Denise gets home so she can take over uh, watching our daughter. Yeah. But, so, yeah. yeah. So I think it's stressful, which I think every parent knows that. Um, but it's it's so rewarding and it makes, you know, like I said, it really helps me focus on making the most of the time that I do have to to do things outside of the house. Right, right. So. I, uh, when, you know, since I'm, I've known you now for over 20 years, yeah, yeah. Uh, I always thought like, oh, Steve's such a workaholic. I don't know. He, I don't think he'd ever, ever settle down. Or, I, didn't I didn't think I would. <laughs> to be honest, I never, I never dreamt I would. And I, I feel a little bit guilty. So I'm, I'm a middle child. So I have an older sister and I have a younger brother. And my younger brother has two girls and my older sister has three boys. And I love seeing my nieces and nephews, but I never remember their birthdays. And I never like, even before face now Facebook, you can kind of know what they're doing, but I never like, not that I pay much attention, but I would just see them on the holidays or like I would ask, you know, call them every now and see what's going on. But until you have kids of your own, you don't really get it. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. So it's just, I mean, it changes your life for the better and it's like, it's unreal just that you're responsible for for these little people for lives yeah yeah <laughs> uh well i think we've covered a lot of bases yeah yeah um, so i mentioned before like so many people like you know i talk about like whitey williams and the dudes at the trails in rochester like kind of legitimized to be an ex for me and it's funny because crandall and mike tag and i think mcgilla i know definitely because crandall those guys used to come to Rochester to our trails. They weren't really my trails, but they were where I rode. Those dudes would come up from Ithaca to camp. <laughs> and it's funny because that was like 1990, probably 91. And Crandall's still doing that. Like <laughs> the DIY thing that like is so now and so perfect. What he's doing is not forced. It's like what he's always oh, done. He's lived that time. life for a long time. Yeah. And yeah. I remember him being, I remember being at Shoreham, it's being x-rays, Hal and I were there, and he was there, and he was so annoying. He was asking <laughs> us so many questions about how we made 2B work. Like, like we'd be just, oh, you just do this. And I remember, like, but I, he was asking all the questions, and, like, like even like Harrison Boyce when I met him, he asked a lot of questions and he's like a really bright guy and you could tell that like he's gonna go places because I mean he's obviously gone a different place than Crandall, but like when you meet successful people or people that are gonna make it work, maybe at that moment you don't know what they're capable of, but like even Crandall back in the earliest days that I knew him, like he wasn't afraid to ask. He definitely kinda of put himself out there and it's like what he's doing is really now, which is funny to yeah. say that because for like the kind of DIY mentality that's so popular and you see brands, not just BMX brands, but just stuff in general on Instagram, like he's been doing that. Oh, yeah. Van life? Yeah. Hashtag van life. <laughs> yeah, he's van life, bus life, all that. Yeah, for life. Yeah. So again, like there's so many errors. I've done like, obviously been working in BMX and then skate for a little bit, then back to BMX, like 
I can't even begin to like come up with who I should thank because there's so many people like obviously like Hal is like and his family clearly just changed things for me and my family is very supportive so obviously they deserve more credit than Hal's family but (laughs) (laughs) but just going through all like you know Lee Ramsdale in the 2B days or and then in the DK days and then just like workshop and DK and like all the team writers I've worked with and like DC shoes and like there's just Magoo like I can't even begin to list all the dudes at Retro Cinema or Duo or Verde and the bike shops that helped us and the mail orders that taught us stuff and like Alan and Taiwan showing us how things are made it's it's unreal how much like again back to making zines and back to making cool stuff like all the people that were part of the cool stuff it's like hard for me to even I couldn't name all the people like people often ask me like what's what's your favorite photo you've ever taken or what's you know who's the best who's who's the best dude and like a lot of people usually expect me to say you like who's my who's your favorite person and sometimes I think like yeah they're right but I'm not gonna say Chris (laughs) I'm gonna say squirrel squirrel (laughs) (laughs) so yeah um well yeah I mean that's you have like over 25 years of of thanks yeah that would uh you could duel out I'm sure yeah yeah make this thing go a lot longer yeah but uh you've certainly you've seen it all you've seen you've seen so much and I appreciate you sharing your story yeah yeah thanks thanks I'm flattered that you uh, thought of me I mean obviously I go way way back with you and we've got some pretty awesome accomplishments and you know I think my favorite photo that I've ever had you took yeah. So, I'll say that my favorite photo that I ever shot was shot with you. Cool. So you don't have to say the same. What was the photo? It was the tail up over the over the uh, rail and the stairs into the the bank at Malines. Yeah, yeah. We shot for uh, DC. Yeah, yeah, that was um, that was my favorite. That was heavy. I mean, I I just saw that sequence of Martinez threeing that. You, you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. I was like, there. That like that spot photo definitely doesn't do it justice. Like what you're hopping off of to whip um it, it, I, and the whole it, 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 it's the whole scene is like big I mean yeah. it's a big bank it's a huge building it's a big staircase so everything just looks big it really wasn't like when you're doing it it doesn't feel as crazy as it looks yeah. but uh yeah I, I love that photo yeah that, that photo's red um, I'm stuck on that that photo and then there's a Kaczynski photo remember when we went to College Park Maryland oh yeah and I shot that night photo of Henry Gaps to Peg yeah, and it's like the sparks are going down before. Yeah, yeah that was that. right because it worked. Like the, the one we're talking about, your, uh, a view is digital. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah. I never got really into digital photography because film stressful. I mean, you and Todd Wachowiak, how many times did I have you do the same trick? Like 15 tricks, like same trick 15 times. If you were to look at the slides, there's barely any difference. I caught the action, but it, just the stress of not knowing if you're going to get it right. Right. Like one time I flew to Kansas City and shot with Dennis McCoy. I brought the film back to Dayton, got it processed, and they screwed it up. They, they, uh, I'm not sure, like always push, they could push the film to stop to, to change the ISO. And like, 
put it in. I was like, yeah, push the stop. And they pushed it two stops, whatever. So they screwed up my film. But I had shot so much with Dennis. I made him do the same thing over and over again that the kind of the wacky settings that I just said, oh, I'll just try this. That ended up being the first, that ended up being the photo that worked and ended up getting printed in the magazine. So I appreciate you doing, you know, No Photo Can Can 12 times in a row. Probably helped you at contest. You're probably yeah. a little dialed, but. Probably. Uh, just the stress of film was, I've thrived, like, you just had to focus so much. You know, I always kept a notepad and, like, tried to make sure I learned from every shoot. But uh, when it turned digital and everybody was a photographer, and now with an iPhone, everybody's a photographer too. But yeah. that kind of lost its luster. In fact, people, when I went to raise for the first time, Keith was like, oh, did you bring your camera to shoot? It's like, I sold all my equipment. <laughs> <laughs> you sold it all. <clears throat> no, I still have a body, camera body, and a couple lenses, but... Okay. Yeah, I never shoot photos. Yeah. <laughs> and a funny, another funny story about the Levi's days. So Levi's was doing that Hawaii trip, and I was working in an alien workshop, and we were really busy, and I was going to go to Hawaii with, with those guys. It's like, man, I just... <sighs> I can't go. I just don't want to fall behind at work. So I called Justin Cosman and hired him. I paid him. It was out of our money. It wasn't like we just got a retainer. So I was like, Justin, get you a flight, pay a thousand dollars to go to Hawaii for a week with these guys. He goes, we get hit by this crazy snowstorm. Like my drive home from Alien Workshop to Columbus is like supposed to be an hour and five minutes. It's like four hours. <laughs> stuck on the highway, and I'm like can't believe Justin Cosman is in Hawaii right now. I'm supposed to be in Hawaii and I paid that guy to go shoot. I could be in Hawaii. Like it was one of the moments where photography was like, not that I was getting out of photography, but it became easier just to hire somebody. Like I'm not going to get on a flight and go to San Diego. I'm not going to get on a flight and go here. I'll just have Cosman shoot it. I'll just have like, see what Jeff Z's got. And that's kind of what, Time becomes so valuable, especially now that I have family. I'm yeah. not going to like, hey, man, let's, let's go on a trip and see what I can get. Honey, watch the kids. I'm going to Hawaii. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, wouldn't, that wouldn't go over so well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, cool. So I'm going to shout out to anybody. Definitely my wife, Angela. Of course. For holding it down, everything she does. Yeah. And then, Your house uh, is immaculate. She loves to clean. <laughs> she loves to clean. So, I mean, actually, I don't know if she loves to clean. She loves a clean house, so she's willing to do the work. Okay. So, but yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for your friendship. I'll never forget your mom sitting me down. <laughs> Wanted to see if I was taking advantage of you, if your this career was going to go anywhere. Well, yeah, this isn't about me. This isn't my interview, <laughs> but yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, I that, that is it. a good story too. Like Chris's mom <laughs> was concerned that we were exploiting him because he was riding for DK and he's in the, in the magazines and stuff. And like, I didn't know what you were going to become. I mean, I believed in you. But I had to be like, well, yeah, there's like Robbie, Miranda, and Neil Wood were making 3000 a month, 4000 a month, and you're making 200 a month. So I had to like say like, yeah, there's dudes at our company that do make like a good living doing this. But I couldn't tell your mom. Imagine if I told your mom like, well, Chris is going to make $4,000 a month someday. Like she would definitely help me do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> When's he getting paid? <laughs> right. When's he going to get paid? Yeah. And like that... That interview, the newspaper interview that you had framed 
in your bathroom yeah. downstairs at your house. You disclosed your salary in that article. Yeah, two hundred bucks a month. <laughs> right, and I remember being like, "Oh man, don't like don't put it in writing." But yeah, two hundred bucks well, a month. To me, that was a lot of money. Yeah, that was a starting point. Yeah. So. Okay, we'll end it with my sixteen-year-old uh, salary or seventeen-year-old <laughs> yeah. salary. Cool. Uh, thanks again. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Chris.